back to another episode of The Russians. Hello. Uh, so today we have uh, a guest that truly fits um, the name of our podcast, The Russians. We're talking to writer-translator Max Lawton, who is famous for being the translator of uh, Sorokin, of Vladimir Sorokin, um, one of the most um, famous, prolific uh, modern Russian writers, who is currently being translated and retranslated into English. Many of his books I've been translated right now, uh, specifically by, by Max. And they, uh, a few of them have been already published by a New York Review of Books uh, publishing house. And uh, it looks like many more are going <laughs> to come out in the next few years. Mm-hmm. Sorokin is basically like a cult writer in, in Russia, but he's not very well known in America. Uh, yes, definitely. Of, yeah. I think he's sort of uh, maybe even better known in Europe, or at least I think in Germany, where he partially has been living for many years, Mm -hmm. but definitely not in America, it looks like, um, where not that many um, of of his English translation exists. Anyway, so, and we talked to, again, as I said, Max Lawton, and uh, he's actually um, a translator, uh, not only from Russian, but also, I think, French, German, I think, Italian, and (laughs) many other languages. Um, But uh, we focus on on his interest, I guess, in Russian literature, and specifically uh, his collaboration, um, and looks like friendship with Sorokin. Uh, that really, I think, at least I think this conversation really uh, gave us kind of the window yeah, into Sorokin's, I don't know, process, <laughs> as they say. Yeah, because Sorokin was like, you know, a big part of what he's been writing about, oh, like a theme of his, some of his, you know, works has been this kind of uh, neo-medieval Russia, basically, right? Um, and, um, you know, kind of a futuristic or an alternative reality Russia or something, you know, um, when which is, I don't know, started to resemble more and more <clears throat> the current Russia. Uh, you know, well, not the current, but at least where people think it might be going considering yeah. the war. So in short, um, my, um, um, I would say, I guess, renewed interest in Sorokin started, um, I mean, unfortunately, with the war. And it looks like I'm not alone in this because um, a lot of things Sorokin been writing about and there were considered kind of outlandish, dystopian. Now I looked at it as a more of a sort of prophetic. Yeah. And um, since the war, I think I found bigger or more appreciation for Sorokin's books. And that's why I was particularly interested talking to, to Max. So here's our conversation with Max Lawton. Enjoy. I read this um, untranslated vlog, and mm-hmm. there was an interview with you there. Yeah, yeah, yeah. yeah and uh, the, the vlog itself is very impressive and kind of like, I guess, arcane can be considered, but not for not for me. <laughs> and uh, I love the interview with you. And um, yeah, I'm kind of really impressed. You guys are both this like um, very uh, sort of old school polyglot types. And uh, as you said, you're translated from like six languages. Is it... Um, um, <laughs> something like the the language skills uh, you have to translate from them, even like literature specifically. You you just um, learned that later in life, or you just you started really early on. How, how it all came about? Well, I basically, I mean, Andres was a big inspiration to me actually because um, his attitude about it is sort of like, why can't I do this? And that that rubbed off on mm-hmm. me in learning 
uh, he's the reason I learned German and Italian because, oh, I, wow. uh, but, um, before that I, I grew up speaking French and French is actually my first language technically, but it's a funny situation mm. because I moved to Chicago when I was three or four. Um, and because of that, I sort of had French as this background thing that I, I, when we moved, my parents are American, but my mom speaks perfect French. When we moved, I mm -hmm. refused to speak French. <laughs> I was just wanted to be American, got obsessed with Power Rangers, uh, eating burgers, going to McDonald's. <laughs> and I really, really hated it when my mom spoke French to me. But um, <laughs> then eventually I did want to speak French again, even though my mom spoke French to me, I just responded in English. Um, so when I was, I think in middle school, I was something like, hold on, this could be cool. <laughs> and I took it back up into high school. Um, and, and in high school, I could read, I read, I read Welbeck in French and like, um, Jonathan Littell, who I'm working with now mm -hmm. on the translation of his second novel. I read, uh, Les Bienveillants, The Kindly Ones, and I love that. So mm -hmm. that was sort of those two languages, um, were how it started. And then I learned Spanish in high school as well, because I, I wanted to read Bolaño in Spanish, um, because I like 2666 a lot. And so when I got into college, I, um, I was, didn't want to learn, didn't want to study French or Spanish because I felt like I had them. And for me, Russian was a uh, fascinating because I, I loved Dostoevsky, but also because I'd read about Sarokin. Um, and I only ice had come out and ice is a pretty weird one to start with. Uh, mm -hmm. And so I read ice and I was like, nah, I don't know. Okay. But I, I, I knew that he was sort of this figure who I wanted to get into more. And I eventually read him in French. So I read Blue Lard in French. And um, before in my senior year of high school, freshman year of college, and, and that was really what pushed me, that I wanted to read Sarokin, read Dostoevsky. And it just sort of is what I slid into. Then it, as time went on, um, so basically after college, I got a fellowship to study at Oxford. And then that gave me a kind of direction. But more than that, I emailed... Vladimir, the first hundred pages of Blue Lard in my translation, which was crazy. You just wanted to do it, yeah, right? Yeah, yeah, yeah. I just, I just loved it, and I got his email, sent him the book, and I, they're not that good at the time. They were, they, they were good instincts, I think. It's like when you see someone who's not that good at a sport, maybe, but has like the right instincts, so you know they could turn into the right thing. And I think mm -hmm. he, he saw the instincts, and so that when I was at Oxford for those two years, I was really obsessed with getting my Russian perfect reading in Russian. I studied in Middlebury, went to Russia. Then in, during my PhD at Columbia, now I was sort of like, my Russian was good and I was working with Sarokin a lot. And I sort of uh, focused on getting a few more languages because a PhD is such a funny way to spend time that it's good to use it to do real things like learning languages. <laughs> yeah, and read books. <laughs> yeah, exactly. Don't, you shouldn't take the work seriously. <laughs> right. But, you know, it's interesting. Now it makes sense because were you born in uh, Belgium, you said? Yes, yes. Well, I guess and since you're basically bilingual from childhood, it sort of makes sense that it's on some level, obviously, you have some predisposition and talent, but it's basically easier to learn more languages. The more you know, the more you can learn. Yeah. That's how I, I feel at least. No, definitely. Your brain's more plastic with that. Right. So, but still, do, would you say Russian is the harder set of the all languages you learned so far and translate from? Is, was it, is it the hardest for you? Um, I think 
probably I actually think well it's interesting to uh it was hard to learn properly because it's it's very different but once you learn it it's actually not that hard I don't think to translate from because the syntax mm-hmm. is fairly similar to English except with sometimes spoken language but for example German I think is much more hard to translate from because the syntax is simultaneously more similar to and more different from English. It's sort of like when you go to a foreign country like England or Canada that's not meant to be a foreign country, the differences are more striking. So like we're theoretically speaking a Germanic language, but it doesn't actually work out that way a lot of the time. So when you mm-hmm. start working with German, it actually feels much more different because it's supposed to be more similar or something. Interesting. Yeah, cuz I it's funny. Yeah, I I had to learn German in like middle, you know, high middle high school and it was like somehow really hard and annoying even though I already knew English. So yeah, I agree German <laughs> seems very very hard and yeah. kind of I don't know, <laughs> not compelled. <laughs> Maybe it was stupid to do it. Um I guess let's focus on Sorokin. So after you basically just email him out of the blue your uh, partial translation, he liked it enough and so he um responded to you and engaged with you and so that's that's how your collaboration started right yeah exactly it's pretty impressive so impressive, well, had you yeah. already had you already at that time had, i mean you weren't a professional uh translator obviously at that time so right so the way that you got into professionally translating literature was through this kind of cold call basically yeah yeah exactly. uh, to Sorokin. that was what pushed me because uh-huh. it was like he wanted to work with me and i was sort of i was very young i still am pretty young uh but uh you know, I was 20, 22 and I was like, Oh my, wow. Oh my God, he wants to work with me. He, I spoke with his agent. I've really got to, um, deserve this opportunity. So I worked very, very hard. I sort of put blue lard off to the side for a while and translated some of his, uh, more simple things. And we, we had a nice email, uh-huh. email back and forth all the time. And that was the first two, two years of it, two or three years of it. I'm, I'm curious because at that time, um, Sorokin hadn't been translated into English very much. Or what was his not? What were his novels that had been translated at, at that point? Uh, it was Day of the Aprichnik. Um, yeah, there was translations. Yeah, mm-hmm. Ice trilogy, the Q, mm-hmm. and the Blizzard. I think the issue was that, in my opinion, he is a writer who's so famous for being extreme, but he has such a comparatively meek later period of his work. So I think people were expecting him to be this extreme writer. And then it was like you were getting some of his later stuff that wasn't as extreme and people were confused by it. So I think to Mm -hmm. really present Sarokin properly, you need to have the extreme early stuff and the late stuff together. Otherwise, people don't necessarily get it. Mm -hmm. Huh. Wait, and by kind of meek or um, like not extreme, uh, you you mean like day of the Aprichnik? You you don't consider that extreme? I mean, compared to Blue Lard or Therefore Hearts (laughs) or (laughs) Pierre Subotnik, I mean, I think it's pretty, it it, it obviously, he, he, what he does is he pulls the camera away. He starts to pull the camera away in the sense that in the Mm -hmm. early stuff, he shows everything horrible that happens and, and the whole point of it. Or a big part of the point of it is the horrible stuff that happens. But in Day of the Aprichnik, mm-hmm. like you have uh, sexual violence and you have uh, horrible mer- violence, but it's not like um, you don't really see it. It's more just alluded to. That's right. It's not as graphic. Yeah, exactly. I, 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 that one I remember very well. I was kind of re- rereading it fairly recently. You, you know what I'm curious? Because you're like, um, well, a foreigner, <laughs> even if uh, you learned Russian 
Do you feel that before going to Russia and fully immersing yourself and like seeing actually day to day life and the, <laughs> the sort of having a lived experience there, uh, did you read Sorokin um, as more of a surreal before you actually visited Russia? Because uh, I'll just be quick with my experience. I, the, the kind of the older I get and the more distance I have from Russia, I haven't been like living constantly there for, for, for quite a while. I actually start thinking, I, I appreciate Sorokin more in a way uh, and, um, think of him as more realistic in this metaphysical way than I ever kind of <laughs> thought of it before, uh, or people give him the credit. It's actually, <laughs> he's, he on some level kind of like Lynch gets to something very real and has a big um, realistic component to him. Yeah. So what's your experience? Yeah. I mean, I, I know what you mean, obviously. I think when I first read him, I was interested in how he sort of depicts. Um, he's got a very neat curatorial way of presenting surreality. Sort of. So like I had this whole theory that before I'd spent as much time in Russia, that I still think is right where it's almost like everything becomes a kind of ready-made in the sense, like uh, Duchamp, where you have the urinal. Mm-hmm, mm-hmm. But what Sorokin's usually doing is presenting ready-mades of things that don't exist from alternate universes. Like, so like uh, Stalin mm-hmm. injecting himself under his tongue in Blue Lard. You sort of look at that almost as if it were a gallery installation, right? But it's something that huh. doesn't exist. So it's like Andy Warhol from an alternate universe or something. And, and I think I still like that way of looking at him of it being like very cold and metaphysical. Um, but I mean, obviously mm-hmm. I, I didn't grasp quite as much how, uh, like, like you're saying how documentary it is. So for example, yes. <laughs> and actually I read a biography of Stalin, um, during COVID, Kotkin? during COVID lockdown. I uh, maybe, was it, um, no, I think, no, 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 definitely not. It wasn't a very serious one. It was a, okay. it was a British guy, Simon something. Maybe it is. I mean, it's not, it's not, not serious, but it's one of those, let me look up what it was called um, because it was very, you know, the sort of genre of British nonfiction written by like a uh, sort of over egged intellectual types. <laughs> uh, you mean history kind of thing? Like, let's say yes. um... it's uh, Stalin, the court of the red czar by Simon. <laughs> C- yeah. I can imagine it now. Yeah. Wait, what's his name? Simon, Simon Seabag Montefiore. <laughs> it's actually, uh, it's a pretty recent him? one, right? Yeah. It's yeah, a pretty it's recent cool. one. I mean, yeah. The thing is, I read it and it I mean, cool is a weird, weird way to put it, but um, but it it made me realize how much Lard is a documentary of the what was going on in the Soviet Union. I think because I think what what Jenny is getting at here is like the same thing you kind of see uh, once you kind of get past the superficial surface layer of like of Lynch, you know, something yeah. we talk about quite yes. a bit, uh, which is that it seems fantastical, but that's just sort of like. Um, if you never lived in LA, yeah. If you never <laughs> yeah, yeah. lived in LA, and if you don't, and if you don't know that world that he's actually describing, you know. And if um, you know, <laughs> and then once you actually, uh, you actually live in, in the world that he's describing a little bit, you get, to, you understand that. Oh wait, it's just he's just he's he's uh, he's he's very descriptive. He's a doc, It's it's very it's very realistic. Yeah. It's, yes. it, but he's just on a, a more metaphysical level or more like philosophical level or something where he's just talking about this thing on you know it isn't, but it is it is just how life is and. and or like the psychological, you know, environment, what what things like, like how they exist in people's heads, maybe. Yeah. And so, but with Sorokin, I mean, I know that, like, I don't know, I'm not, I don't think I've read nearly as much as uh, Sorokin as, as Evgenia has, but, um, I mean, you know, speaking about the the sort of documentary approach, I mean, his first novel is basically straight 
like documentary of of what it feels like to be in a queue, like to mm-hmm. be in line, right? And in uh, in the Soviet Union, and just the absurdity of constantly waiting in lines. And um, I mean, it's just straight up. It's not even. It's not. Sur- there's nothing surreal about it. Maybe it seems surreal to to people, you know, to people who've never experienced it. Or well, something. the thing is, well, there are two interesting things. I live actually in L.A. right by uh, the. <laughs> Bob's Big Burger, where David Lynch went. Oh wow! Yeah, I, live, <laughs> I know that place. Yeah, yeah, I live. I don't like right. Next, I live like up on the hill, right by it. So I like go on jogs past it all the time. Um, so it's, but I think it's right that like. Um, <laughs> That's funny. Lynch, you understand what's an actually think. If you take a single walk through the hills, you go, "Oh my yes. god, he didn't actually make up that much." It's a. Uh, it's all. No. It's all right here. Mulholland Drive is real. Yeah, 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 yeah. And all those <laughs> the movie, weird yeah. characters. The... He lives it. It's his, his neighborhood. Yeah. You know? yes. <laughs> his neighborhood. Yes, yeah. It's always lost highway. Yeah, I know. It's all it's all in the neighborhood. Yeah. yeah. So back to Sorokin, because I actually, um, kind of similar to what we're talking about, Lynch, once you know, or now you you live next to his neighborhood. I, I kind of, when I read Sorokin, uh, certain things I recognize just in a documentary way. They're like real things he's describing, real uh, streets, uh, the neighborhood neighborhoods the sort of just yeah everything is very much um like not invented it just like presented in this kind of i would even say like clinical fashion i kind of like your idea of deshaun already made but i don't know i never give, give it a thought i just thought it's very clinical as if he's yeah, yeah, uh, yeah. sort of not like he's he's like a this kind of slightly crazy doctor type yeah. but he's not like too emotionally involved in the operations or in the kind of <laughs> cutting the pus out or stuff like that it's too it's very clinical but he always has a moment where that clinical mode shifts into a fantastical mode so the the fingernail right. there's a story the fingernail that's a really good example from a recent collection white square so in the fingernail it's like a very typical russian dinner party where everyone's a little bit mm-hmm. annoying I mean, it takes place during the Soviet Union, but it's this, the, the phenotypes haven't changed that much. The, the rhythms of speech, the annoying declarative sentences. Um, and, and, and at a certain point, someone goes to the bathroom and they ha- don't have toilet paper because there's a toilet paper shortage. And they get in a huge argument about if you can wipe your ass with your bare hand or your finger and then wash it. And it, it get, becomes such a terrible argument that they end up throwing someone off of the balcony <laughs> to their death. <laughs> and then the little boy who's in the family runs away. And at the train station, there's an uh, ex-con with a long pinky nail. <laughs> and he's eating uh, pirashki at the train station from a greasy paper bag. And the little kid looks at the fingernail swirling through the air, making a figure eight. And then it ends. But So I think that's a good example of like, there are all these details that like the greasy paper bag with Pirashki in it, or the the modes of speech, I wouldn't necessarily have understood as being typical and as mm. being a sort of documentary. But then again, mm-hmm. I think the most important thing to understand is his ability to transform the banal into... The way I put it is he like um, starts a conversation between the banal and the void. <laughs> um, mm-hmm. and, 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 but it be- always becomes macabre, right? Yeah macabre or it becomes metaphysical it's also like william blake you know william blake wrote um jerusalem which is really just about his neighborhood in london but it's like um doesn't feel that way because he was just looking at stuff and seeing angels and and demons and and um you know metaphysics everywhere even though he was just in some weird little 
not very nice neighborhood in London. And he was a, you know, crazy guy. Sorokin is not a crazy guy, but I think, I think his, the, the process is pretty much the same is that he's sort of walking around, seeing what he sees and then transforming it into his own Jerusalem. Well, let me ask you this though. I mean, cause I haven't read the, the short story, but it does, I mean, it does sound very realistic. I mean, I mean, maybe the, the, the source of the argument, because, you know, if you, I mean, if you spend any time, you know, living in Russia or even reading the news, you know that, you know, these kinds of dinner parties or, or just dinners, people having, you know, hanging out and kind of drinking together and eating can turn, you know, extremely violent and, and chopping and, up and, and, each and other, with, you, know? you know, like, not necessarily not cannibalism, but basically someone being chopped up in the in the in the in their in their own bathtub, you know, and then being carried out piece by piece, you know, over several days. I mean, it basically what happens is people drink and are and and they go into these you know into the on these huge benders, and it's like a serious problem, you know. Actually, I mean, it's just it's it's so common, you know, it's almost a cliche at this point, right? It, it's it's and, and and the stuff is so over the top, you know, in terms of the violence, you know, and it starts frequently over some kind of mundane mundane. You know, trivial argument. You know, it could be anything. And so, I mean, it doesn't sound. Again, it sounds like. Um, it sounds like. Uh, it just sounds very. I don't know. It doesn't sound very shocking, even. You know, I, I, maybe maybe it's written in. A, I don't know how how this particular story is written, but yeah. So you know. his early stories in Pierre Subotnik doesn't um, sound like he's describing angels or demons. He's just mm-hmm. describing reality. Right. Yeah. Um, th- I mean, that's partially true, but in um, in this early collection, Pierre Subotnik. Mm-hmm. Um, he has it's this method called binary bombs. So the first half mm-hmm. of the story will just lay out a very common, typical situation from socialist realist prose mostly, but could also just be from reality as such. And then at a certain moment, a switch will be flicked and um, everything goes wrong. The characters start speaking in gibberish. Um, huh. So for example, like uh, in the story, geologists, um, they're, uh, some of their companions have gone missing on, a, on an expedition during a big snowstorm and they're trying to decide what to do and they can't come to a decision. They're arguing uh, it's the dead of night, a blizzard outside. I think they're on the taiga. And then um, at a certain point, <laughs> one of the characters says, you know what we need to do? And then says just a phrase in gibberish. And then they all uh, stand in a circle, put their palms together into a trough and vomit into their hands and, and rub it all over their faces. And then the story ends. So the point is, is that he's always taking these situations that are kind of ordinary and then making them mm-hmm. um, crazy. He kind of pushes them. Yes. Like there's like a certain push. <laughs> yeah. So the vi- but the violence, it's very important to him as well. The violence is seen as it's like he's exaggerating something to make the grain of truth that exists within it more uh more legible so uh, yeah mm-hmm. magnify magnify to make a to make it make a make a point or to make a more yeah exactly. i get it yeah i mean does the binary bump is that your uh, for, uh description for it is that or is that something it's, he it's his, yeah. descri- it's, it's his it's interesting i actually um uh, how you say binary bump? binary bump yeah. yeah interesting so he binary Binary bomb, which so it's like a binary bomb or a binary, binary bomb, bomb, binary bomb, a little binary bomb. Yeah. yeah. So it's like a conscious, almost. It's like a tool, right? Exactly. In a way. Exactly. Or there's, you know, in um, Norma in the norm, mm-hmm. there's uh, the novella Padyosh when they um, the two uh, collective farm party committee members come back and and the farm is destroyed and it turns out that the 
cattle are humans who are who are dying um, in a scourge. So I think like he's always taking something that's real and then pushing it into the realm of the fantastical in a way that makes it more real. So that's what Vladimir always mm-hmm. says. He says, um, realist prose is no longer able to catch up with reality. The only thing able to catch yeah. up with reality is uh, complicated optics. <laughs> right. But you know what? Do you think, uh, well, you're a writer yourself, right? You, you, I think you're a novelist. Yeah, yeah. Do you actually believe that the so-called realist prose ever could? Because I, I started believing that it never could. <laughs> I mean, you know? that's an interesting question. Um, something like, it certainly was easier for it to before. I think there's so much information now and so much reality is so much more layered. You know, if you like news, yeah, all that stuff, right? Yeah, or I mean, if you read something like Ulysses, I don't. What would a modern Ulysses be? I think Ulysses does mm-hmm. a pretty good job of accounting for every layer of reality present in the city. But you know, there aren't as many intrusions, sort of. And and also the just the I do think the thing that changed, according to like I agree with Slaughter here in his um, Spheres trilogy. That what happened is we have this profusion of uh, bubbles <laughs> that become a foam. And so we lose our sense of transcendental certainty and uh, groundedness. And that's sort of the cause of a lot of... The- I mean, I think, I think that maybe, you know, um, yeah, I mean, I, I can understand. I mean, I can understand that because we do have so many layers of, of information kind of layered on, on top of everything, you know, I mean, and it get, keeps getting more and insane. Quick actually. cycle. Uh, yeah, insane whereas, cycle, I don't know, right? Like, and not just no, that, it's, it's also like, yeah. um, think about... The, the ideas, yeah, the ideas. and things like that. The skepticism mm-hmm. with which we sort of relate to everything, every idea, every meta-narrative, right? That cre- mm-hmm. And also, yeah, the deadness that, that exists now to, towards anything, basically, and the need for more and more stimulation in order for, to get to break through and to, peop- to break through uh, and, and get people to even care or, or be surprised by something, right? It's... Um, um, yeah, no, it's, it's interesting. It, actually, it's kind of, I have a related question because I know that, you know, Sorokin is, 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 is extremely, I mean, like from, 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 uh, from what you're even describing here, Sorokin seems to be a very, um, like he, he, he's very aware of the architecture of his own writing, right? And he's very methodical about it, very, very, you know, he's not, it's not like just kind of pouring out of him and then he's not really aware of what's happening. And then, uh, so, so, because as a as a translator, you, you're basically that's kind of the role that you have to take, right? You 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 read someone's, um, you know, someone's work, and then you have to translate it into a different language, and and you know sometimes rewrite certain things or change certain things, and you know to to convey the point, right? So you have to really analyze. I mean, the way that you approach his, you know, the way that you approach translation, it's like you have to understand the structure of it and and the kind of uh, dig dig into it, almost like psychoanalyze it, right? And he. And so he, but he does that himself in a way, right? <laughs> I mean, so do you, uh, I, I, so the question is, I guess, is, so he's always guiding you because he's so aware of his, um, of, you know, kind of the structure of his work and, and the intent that he's trying to, the intention that he has in it, you know, is he guiding you or is there things that you've kind of opening, open up for him in terms of like the, the deeper meanings of his work for, 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 for him? I think both. I mean, is there, can you, yeah. If some examples. Yeah, yeah, that'd be great, actually, if you have some. Yeah, tons. I mean, <laughs> I have examples from today even. I, I just turned in the final draft of Blue Lard like uh, half an hour before our, before our, uh, our talk started. So um, we were texting. Wow, congratulations. Thank yeah. you, thank you. Good timing, yeah. Yeah, well, for example, um, I just texted him about 
there's a lot of gibberish in his early books. So there's um, references to things that don't exist, made up names, made up book titles. And, and so a lot of the time I'm going to made up words even that I'll just be texting him and say, Vladimir, is this a made up word? And he goes, yep, just leave it how it is. Don't change it. And, and so a lot of the time he doesn't want the elements of um, uh, sort of non-transparency to go away. And what I think is relevant there is Invitation to a Beheading, the Nabokov book, where mm-hmm. obviously Cincinnatus C is sentenced to death for being non-transparent, right? Uh, mm-hmm. uh, and for Vladimir, it's really important to be non-transparent. So a lot of the time he wants me to not change things within his books that are meant to just be incomprehensible. So we're always working together to determine what is supposed to remain incomprehensible and what is to be uh, mm. made legible in a different language. But he'll often say when I'm saying, I think we could change this word a little bit because it does have certain resonances in Russian. He'll say, Max, don't delve into symbolism. Don't change it. <laughs> okay. okay. <laughs> <laughs> Wait, but uh, so if for him to be able to do any of this, uh, his English has to be r- rather good. Yeah, he, he reads very well in English and he speaks well too. But I think he reads, he reads uh-huh. all the stuff and he gives me comments. And he's actually amazingly good at thinking up gibberish in English that sounds good, thinking of neo- neologism. Sometimes he'll say, I, I have a better idea for this word. And I'll say, well, let's see. And I go, hmm, that's really good. So he, he's... Um, <laughs> it's very collaborative. Like, there's a real collaboration, you feel, right? Yes, yes. And uh, But sometimes he also has awareness of the meta structure in a way that I, I'm surprised by because he's resistant to talking about this. For example, when we did the event at MoMA with the writer Blake Butler... Um, for the 92nd Street Y series, Blake really wanted to ask Vladimir how stuff worked in his prose. And Vladimir kept saying, like, you want to be let into the writer's kitchen, Blake. I don't think that's going to be possible. <laughs> but I do get some glimpses into the writer's kitchen. And um, there are examples. For example, um, Therefore Hearts, if you've read it, it's incredibly violent. I know what's it about it. This one I've I never not, read. Yeah. Mm-hmm. Um, so Blake of... Loves it, but he always says, the one problem with it is it's too violent. And Vladimir will always remember this and say, but doesn't he understand that the central narrative principle that holds the text together is an excess of violence? And I go, yeah, yeah, yeah of course. Um, so he does have this sort of uh, theoretical understanding of his prose too. And um, he, he just doesn't like sharing it, I think. Because I think he's smart. Yes, yeah, <laughs> makes sense. Yeah. Lynch never shares anything. I think he understands more than he ever says. Yes, of course. Of course. <laughs> which is which is the right way to, to do it. But you know what I'm sorry if I'm like Not going good for to... the podcast economy though. <laughs> <laughs> no. The ninety the ninety second street Y guy was a bit mad afterwards. He was like, Why wouldn't he say more? I was like I don't know. Uh... I don't know what to tell you. He also that's kind of, well, I just never mind. <laughs> anyway. Yeah. But you know, so what I'm curious about, I don't know if you know about this, um, obviously, <clears throat> so Sarakin was translated into other languages and specifically into English before. I don't know, what do you think generally what of the other translations? Let's say you probably read Day of Aprishnik in English, yeah, right? Yeah, yeah. Initially, or... Mm-hmm. So Jamie Gambrell, who unfortunately passed away, was the oh. uh, previous translator. Um, and she was friends with Vladimir as well. But I think um, she was very uh, a very elegant stylist. I think sometimes mm-hmm. she shies away from the more extreme 
moments, linguistically speaking. Um, and I think I'm always very eager to lean into those and to also do it crazily. Um, I, I guess I actually had a moment of pure, I don't know, not terror, but let's say recognition. When I went to this translation conference last year at Cambridge, uh, and I was listening to all the other translators talk and realizing just how differently I do things from everyone. So I think it's not really like a Sorokin's previous translator versus me, but I think it's sort of like everyone versus the way I do things, which is, for example, they say you shouldn't translate into dialects. Um, so mm-hmm. you're just supposed to make it, everything should just go into a relatively elegant, relatively flat idiom. That seems to sort of be the common notion of what a translator does and like if there's a part in dialect just don't do it in dialect if there's a really crazy thing Mm. in colloquial language sort of smooth it out a bit if the language is quite jagged just make it a bit elegant and i I was sitting there listening and i was like this is why yeah (laughs) crazy yeah because i mean i also then you just destroy everything in vladimir's work like teluria teluria was a book Mm -hmm. that it's 50 chapters and 50 different voices a lot of them yeah. are, uh, you know, um, marked regionally, rurally, um, slang, different countries, how robots might sound. So I really had to go crazy with it. And, and it worked uh, well, and people liked it a lot, and it got good reviews. A few, like, Russian professor types were sort of saying, well, d- Southern American English isn't the same as Southern Russian, rural Russian, or Skaz Russian. Oh. And I'm like... Yeah, but okay. Yeah. What am I supposed to do exactly? And uh, yeah, I remember one time someone was funny. <laughs> someone was giving me a comment on That's one of the ridiculous. short stories where I had the grandma speaks in a very rural sounding Russian idiom, and I made it a rural sounding American English idiom, as one does. Uh, and, and someone said, "Well, they're not American." And I was like, "Uh huh." <laughs> then why are they speaking such marked American English? And I go. Uh, what what should I do? And he says, make it sound Russian. And I go, what should it sound like Russians speaking bad English? R- like rural Russians from rural areas speaking bad English? And he's like, I don't know, but just they should sound Russian. And I was like, all right, dude. <laughs> Thank you. Yeah. <laughs> well, they shouldn't be speaking English in the first place if they're Russian. Yeah, yeah, exactly. Uh, <laughs> yeah, I just should leave everything. I mean, they, they, there's, this, there's your sin right there. Just stop translating, you know? Yeah. yeah. <laughs> That's you know, we gotta, we gotta, we gotta, yeah, put you on Lobne Miesta for the sin of or translation. What, or, yeah. or should you do like Anthony Burgess thing? Why, like, yeah. just throw some Russian words in there? That's yeah. maybe what they're thinking. I don't know. I mean, the whole. But which would be more of an immigrant, you know, be more of an immigrant. We talk about this actually, you know, uh, because I grew up here in, in, in California, in San Francisco, in an immigrant community, and, you know, we, we live here in San Francisco now, kind of slightly in this immigrant community again, because, uh, we just moved up here pretty recently, and, you know, and like one of the things that happens to immigrants, right, is they kind of they have this pastiche language that kind of emerges a kind yeah. of a you know kind of new a kind Rus- of American Rus- Yiddish English. type. Yeah. It's a mix, yeah. except with Russian as the base rather than German. Yeah, and, um, yeah grammar yeah. base is definitely Russian, and then yeah. there's like English and, and so, vocabulary. So, you know, we were, we talk about this. Some you know, Genio always says, "Oh man, and, you know this this language is disappearing, you know, quickly." Mm. And so it's like, and there's there's no one really, no Soviet sort of American or whatever immigrant Soviet immigrant in America 
uh, author who's captured it basically, you know, mm. you know, some kind of novel form. Not really, you know. That's true. Uh, but who would understand it? The problem yes. with that, I always thought, well, <laughs> I definitely can sort of like capture it because I'm an outsider enough. But the problem is the only people who would understand it, the immigrants themselves or some somewhat sophisticated Russians who know English really well, yeah. like the Moscovites. Someone could write like yeah. a Juno Diaz book for Brighton Beach <laughs> where it's like <laughs> Russian, yeah. sort of like, but I've, Spanish is just so much better known, I guess. You'd have to you'd have to really limit the number of Russian, Russian words. Yeah. Um, you'd actually have to it, you'd have to flip the you'd have to change the language. You know, you'd actually almost have to translate it in a way. I mean, you'd have to translate the language and almost flip it, make it the no, base think, English I rather than Russian. I think it's good to Russian do like the, and, the, the fair uh, thing. Like the it's it's stupid to flip it because the whole idea of of preserving it or like capturing it, at least not yes. preserving for the history, is not flipping it but making it as it is. Yes, and it's okay. It's, we'll be have uh, it could can have only very very limited audience yes but that's yes. that It'll is right, it in, right into the into the into the library you, yeah. you would get it for sure would, yeah. yeah there are a lot of meme pages of it <laughs> like uh people who live on brighton beach who have meme meme pages where it's like speaking meme pages what, yeah. what is it uh, what do you I'll, mean I'll, I'll, I don't, like memes like, like, a meme. ah, memes, like memes, people memes, making, got it. and people making tiktoks a lot of people make tiktoks <laughs> where they sort of do the Here's my Russian oh. Soviet mom who lives in America and speaking the that's funny Russian or whatever. But Rushlish, yeah. So maybe that's the best way for it to be preserved. So there's something, yeah. There's some things that are kind of untran- un- you can't trans- translate them, right. and you know, I mean, it gets into the whole idea of you know how do you uh, how do you um, yeah how do you transform one language into another, and what do you lose, and what do you what do you retain, and all these things. So yeah. it's like a it's a real it's a real it's a real interesting problem. I mean, you kind of yeah. get, you get you get it if you if you are an immigrant, basically, um, pretty pretty well. You know, uh, deep down in my bones, you know, we're all kind of translators, I guess, immigrants um, to some degree. You know, yeah, yeah. Well, not I'm not I'm not an immigrant. No, enough, but you're so even not better. Me. Well, yeah, well, and, but uh, but immigrants don't aren't even aware of of what they're doing. Really, you know, it's like yeah. So um, yeah, but yeah. Okay, let's back uh, away from immigrants. Uh, Something about Sorokin I wanted to ask you or talk to you about is basically I feel like in the last few years and especially with the war, I feel like Sorokin even gained more of a profit status than ever before in a way. Um, I know it's been happening for a while, but still, um, do you feel for you, because you probably read some news coming from Russia <laughs> and the language <laughs> it's put in, like all the different, uh, I don't know, Duma readings, you know, like the, yeah, the, yeah. the parliament, crazy laws and just generally what's going on. So how how do you look look at it? Have you considered Sarakin kind of like this profit figure before? Uh, did it change for you like in the last few years? So what what do you think about like this kind of the relevance Almost like the, re- I would say, renewed relevance. It's definitely right. I mean, he did predict. I'm actually shocked sometimes. Even yesterday, when I was going over the part of Blue Lard where they're talking about nuking America, I was like, "Oh my god, <laughs> this could be on PHV Canal right now." Like, uh-huh. Uh huh. So, I definitely think it's justified. But I also think what makes Vladimir so interesting as a writer is that he operates in this sort of liminal space between uh, art for the sake of art and uh, dissident prose. And I think um, he really wants to be an artist just for the sake of art. But of course, he's been so political for so much of his career that it's not possible. But he's always striving for that. And I think that's best represented by two particular instances in some of his early books, both involving Solzhenitsyn. So if you remember in Marina's 30th Love, I don't know if either of you have read it, 
I, I read it. Yeah, yeah, yeah. So it's about the dissident lesbian woman who eventually meets and falls in love with the secretary of the factory party committee um, who gives, <laughs> yeah. her, gives her her first orgasm a man's ever given her. And then she falls in love with the Soviet Union. That is her 30th love. Spoiler alert. Uh, and um, But there's a part in that book where she has Solzhenitsyn's picture by her bed. And every night she masturbates to it. And she thinks about the fact that Solzhenitsyn will give her her first orgasm that a man's ever given her. And, and then there's another instance in Blue Lard where after they have sex, Stalin and Khrushchev are talking about um, one day in the life of Ivan Denisovich, which is not, not Denisovich, but Denisovich. And um, in this <laughs> different version of one day in the life of Ivan Denisovich, like... Um, Ivan Denisovich is a sex criminal, and then in the in, and then the love lag, or the gulag. <laughs> yeah, and the gulag is I translated. <laughs> like... They do cocaine. They do cocaine. They have constant orgies that are like described really viciously. <laughs> like they have forked dicks they put into each other's nostrils. The, the, <laughs> the, 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 the biggest gulag classic is described as uh, fucking an old man through his catheter. And so Stalin and Khrushchev are discussing one day in the life of Ivan Denisovich, and they're saying, this doesn't sound like the Gulov I know, but this guy Shalamov, <laughs> who, who's my janitor, actually, he has a forked dick too, and he read the book and said, that isn't my Gulov. Um, so I think those two instances show the extent to which uh, Vladimir kind of looks skeptically at um dissident prose as such and wants to distance himself from it. But obviously there's an element of political a- action or uh, commentary in his books too. But he gets sick of it. He Like when we were on the tour, he was getting so sick of all the people being like, Vladimir Georgievich, скажите, пожалуйста. Like, uh, you wrote about um, Putin's Russia. What do you think is going to happen? When will the war end? <laughs> and Vladimir would say, they're going to... Yeah. Yeah, he's <laughs> They're all gonna. Yeah, they're all gonna. They're, yeah, they're all gonna. Wait. They're all gonna do gender bending and you know fuck each other. Yeah, yeah, yeah basically. Exactly. What, yeah, that's they the may answer. be alright yeah. doing yeah. it. Yeah, yeah, yeah. <laughs> yeah, but but you know what? I'm curious because I don't. I actually don't know enough about the actually this perception in the West and what's going on with the whole Sorokin, I guess, reputation. But so he's considered like the dissident writer. Is it what's what's going on? Because I, you know, as as a Russian, I actually never thought of a way because he always lived in Russia and he's like didn't have to immigrate it's a very specific thing you know yeah I think to yes. be dissident writer yeah but he's considered one of them yes oh okay he's an internal dissident it, <laughs> <laughs> um, well yeah. right okay so I think yes but it's strange because because he's seen as like yeah I mean it's it's so interesting thing because as far as even I mean uh, we were talking the, about this with, with Jenny before mm-hmm. and it's like he's got Sarokin is appreciated by all these different kind of parts of Russian society you know p- from people who kind of see themselves as like Marxist and you know pretty hard left uh, are really you know love love him and are, are completely you know um Love his work and, or, you know, love the sort of the politics of it. And then you have people Dukhodar, like, Khodarkovsky loves like, him. You know, the oligarchs, you know, basically the, the, the Russian elite, right? The, 
people who were part of the Soviet, Soviet structures and, you know, they profited off their connections. Yeah, like, like Mikhail Khodorkovsky. He's a big fan. And were, of course, you know, obviously pushed aside by Putin in a kind of in, in a power rearrangement that he, that he was in charge of. And so they're, uh, you know, uh, huge fans of Sorokin. And, and on as a top prophet. of it, what, what I know is that even inside, um, what, would look um, like um, sort of like semi-pro Kremlin or pro uh, power media circles. He maybe no one openly would like say it, but they, he's very much respected because they yeah. know what they're doing is like <laughs> whatever trash or whatnot. It's just like being a sellout, but like he's very respected. So, so I don't know. It's hard for me to, it's not like a secret, right? He's sort of like a Russian liberal in a way. Right. And uh, it seems like, it's not contradictory to the general attitude of most cultured Russians, no matter where they stand politically. Yeah, uh, yeah that, that's my impression, at least. Uh, yeah. Is it not yours? That's probably right. But I think that's more a function of the fact that he doesn't just write political pamphlets. You know, mm-hmm. like I, I think if you read into the books, pretty much all of them are intensely negative in their attitude toward the Soviet Union. All of them are intensely mm-hmm. negative in their attitude towards Putin's Russia. But it's just you don't have to actually delve into it that deeply if you want to just read it on the surface. Because there's such good pieces of art that um, they allow for that surface reading that uh, people can just sort of ignore the content. I mean, it's interesting because if you take away sort of Putin's... I mean, everyone's critical of the Soviet Union and Russia. I mean, it's like including everyone hates... Yeah, every, including Putin. You know, he is like the number one anti-communist right now, you know, uh, even though he does, you know, borrow images from the great patriotic war and all that stuff, you know, I mean, and like, you know, and, and the, the fight for over Nazism or, you know, fight against Nazis and all this stuff, but everyone is an anti-communist basically in, in Russia. So it doesn't, so I, so yeah, I mean, I guess for me, he's interesting because he's, he, people can kind of see what they want to see in his, in his, in his books, I guess, you know? Um, um, and there is, there's a lot of like the stuff that he expresses there is, you know, common to a lot of people from seemingly diff- polit- different sort of, I don't know, like, political backgrounds or at least like different factions of the elite of the country, you know, some that were in power and are no longer in power, you know, some that are more in power. But it's, I think that's, I mean, I wonder if Putin, yeah, yeah. Mm -hmm. I wonder if Putin has read, read him. I'm sure, I'm sure he's glanced. (laughs) Probably. He's he's had like a summary or something of, maybe someone would, would, did show him at least day of Aprichnik because it's way too close now to, to the whole, that's, that's one of the whole like prophetic thing that I fully sign up of. The fact that now exists as part of, uh, you know, um, uh, God, what do you call it in English? Uh, Pravlenia E, like anti-extremism. Uh, basically, there's a type of a a literally unit, special right? unit, yeah. Oh. Yeah. Uh, unit, very violent, very kind of dominant way. Basically, anti, like basically t- taking poli- it's a, uh, it's all political. So they're they're like hunting for political mm-hmm. enemies within and the country. And for people they suspect of some yeah. sort of like. Um, t- so-called terroristic tendency, which is like mostly they just anti uh, f- hunting anarchists down and like yeah. torturing them with um, electricity or whatever. Yeah, and uh, that I mean, sounds yeah. like just from the book. So, uh, so yeah, some some things definitely um, weirdly like came to life. Yeah. yeah, I mean, I think that's the whole thing with great art, though, is that it's volatile. So um, yeah. any real artist actually can't make a full political point because the art itself contradicts them or gets out from under their grasp or um is something art is something in and of itself so it can't actually be properly political and you see that with dostoevsky right dostoevsky was Mm -hmm. a super religious russian nationalist but the work itself doesn't support that it in fact undermines it uh 
I even see there's a very interesting case with um, Mikhail Yelizarov, who is a real nationalist and like has very nasty views, but his books seem anti-Russian when you read them. Like Zimlia, this book that he put out recently, which I actually like a lot, seems like the most brutal, nasty portrait of Russia today you could possibly read that seems actually like a pretty accurate portrayal of the problems and the sort of metaphysics. Uh, and it's about a grave digger. Um, but he doesn't seem to see that himself. So it's an interesting case. And I think with Sarokin, like, again, it's not that his books undermine liberal beliefs. It's just that there are, there's some, there, they are an object in and of themselves. So like Blue Lard, obviously it's very anti-Soviet, but also it is just this immense object. And, and I don't know. Mm-hmm. I just, I don't, I'm actually just skeptical of the idea that any great art can actually have or prove political ideas. I can't think of a great book that has like a real set of political beliefs that gets proven. You know, I think like people instrumentalize art a lot. I think people have instrumentalized mm-hmm. Dave the Aprichnik. But for me, what Dave the Aprichnik yeah. is mostly about is like the, the language. Um, and, and there, I did hear my friend who's a composer, a uh, Ukrainian composer who did the music for Loveless, the um, last Vyagensev movie. Vyagensev. Yeah, yeah. Mm-hmm. Um, he has a funny theory about uh, Dave the Aprichnik, specifically the orgy scene, because um, <laughs> Vladimir perhaps, rep- this is Yevgeny's theory. Um, Vladimir realizing the potential all great art has to be read in different ways and not actually portray a single political message, perhaps recognized that some Vatnik or mini Vatniks could um, read Dave Vyaprichnik and go, man, this is pretty cool. We should be like this. So for that reason, he put in a giant gay bathhouse orgy just to make them go, oh, God, no. Uh, I don't think that's probably true, but it might be. (laughs) They might be into it, man. You never know. Who knows, knows, right? But but, you know, I want to just correct you or maybe there was misunderstanding. Basically, uh, I... Or at least I implied that not not that Sorokin's work undermines liberal uh, liberal beliefs. That actually he I thought it's like fully reflects liberal beliefs of at least liberal Russians, which is a special kind. It's not like liberals in America. It's uh, I want to differentiate Russian liberals is like a separate <laughs> kind of animal. No, so definitely. I I I thought that um, just to reiterate that. Um, overall, uh, I agree with you that um, like really actually good art, doesn't matter if film or um, or a book, cannot be pinned down to one some sort of like political agenda, political thought, and that's usually multifaceted. But in case of Sorokin, overall, uh, I always got the sense, and I probably didn't read as many books as you read by him, obviously, but that he actually is fully overall in line with the Russian liberalism. Yeah. Like actually yep. doesn't undermine, but fully like supports it. Yes, fully anti-Soviet. He actually seemed to fit in almost like being, um, even if he's like a loner or whatnot, being part of this kind of, I don't know, group or that kind of like uh, his generation of uh, nonconformist uh, intelligentsia, uh, urban, I don't know, uh, or at least Moscow and St. Petersburg types uh, of artists who are all, you know, Russian liberals. They sort of hated the Soviet Union, Soviet Union ended, and maybe they're not super pro-capitalist. I, I don't know exactly what it means, but they generally like support just Western liberalism, Western style of democracy, blah, blah, blah. So, so in a way, some things can be simplified, at least that's what I 
um, that's the sense I get from from the books. Or you, do do you disagree with that? Well, I know Vladimir personally. Yes, he supports um, Western ideals, Western liberalism, Western democracy for sure. Um, it's an interesting question if that's actually. But I think that's again a sort of tension in the books themselves, uh, in a certain respect. Really? Because I mean, okay. Because the, la- the last book that I read of him, full of his fully, was the, De- the Daniel Prichnika. And I mean, you know, it's a great book. I really enjoyed the book. I actually, I'm not a huge. I'm not. I can't say I'm like a big fi- uh, Sorokin fanatic. But I really. I mean, I, I it put a smile on my face. I don't know. Uh, that book was just um, on all. Uh, uh, it really, and it's and it's, you know, and it is has like prophetic elements or whatever it is describing through its ridiculousness an aspect of of a kind of you know of, of Russian society today and but it has like a purely you know the perspective of it is you know i mean it can't be can't be completely constrained by it i don't think you know um but it is a like a liberal you know it's kind of distillation a distillation of some liberal liberal ideas and thinking about what russia represents now a kind of you know rolling back kind of retrograde Ivan the Terrible uh, kind of society, you know, you know, uh, autocracy, conservative, you know, the 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 kind of the the coming back of Russian orthodoxy in this huge way, uh, in this sort of stifling way, in this controlling way. It's sort of you know, and so like it's just it's it, you hear these things, you know, and from Russian liberal in Russian liberal circles, um, they're pretty. It's all you know, they're like almost a like cliche cliche. Th- uh, themes or ideas, and so it, it, the book was kind of a distillation of them. I mean, it was it was a fun it was a fun read. I liked it a lot, and there's truth to it. But 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 yeah, I, I saw it as a purely liberal book. I mean, is, are there am I missing something that yes. that that? Um... <laughs> I think so, but it's it's more complicated than an idea, which is to say, I think Vladimir is very attracted to the iconography and the aesthetics of Russia in a non-liberal way. Which is to say that I think he um, really likes the old-fashioned ideals of Russia, not Russian Empire, but just the Russian way of life, kind of. And I think Vladimir comes out of that. And um, uh, what do you mean by Russian way of life? Like, like uh, country, yeah, yeah, yeah. Uh, like, gentry, yeah, exactly, the gentry exactly, element? Exactly, exactly, exactly. Not, not. So um, I think Vladimir. So like in, and I think he's. The language, the for example, Dave the Aprichnik, why it works as a book and why it isn't just a screed, a liberal screed, is because he loves the language that he is portraying as a tool of oppression. But it's rendered so lovingly, and that's why the book is actually good, right? Um, so I think that the complexity for him is that he has a sort of schizophrenia that comes out of the love-hate relationship. So, for example, mm-hmm. Raman his book, uh, a novel. Oh, I read that one. Yeah, yeah, yeah. So the first, <laughs> That's fun. the first 400 pages are just a loving homage to Russianness, to Russian tradition, to a, a sort of semi-idealized, or not semi-totally idealized gentry way of life that Vladimir actually really, that's, I mean, like he, he didn't have that exact way of life in Nukova, but that's sort of was the ideal for his life in Nukova. And then at the same time, at the very end of that, he has it end in this terrible uh, axe murder or massacre. So I think mm-hmm. for him, it's this, um, he's constantly doing like self-criticism of his own ideals and sort of trying to take them apart. And he said that, he says that sometimes he says, every day of my life, I have to fight against the subwalk within me. Um, so I think. Yeah. To let the gentry shine through. Well, yeah. not just the gentry, <laughs> the- but the like the. It's, he's got like three different modes, kind of. 
which is the <laughs> like more Western looking liberal. Then he's got the sort of backwards looking what wishing for a kind of gentry mode of existence. Then he, he also grew up in the Soviet Union. And so he has all this mm-hmm. Soviet experience. So I think what makes his work interesting is that those three modes sort of interlap, uh, um, interact and overlap. He's pretty, yeah, he's pretty savok to me, I gotta say. You know, I mean, no matter how much he hides it, you know, it tries to, you know. He's, but, it, but you don't mean a derogatory. No, I don't mean a derogatory. I, I, I mean, yeah, I think he, the savok is the thing that shines, you know, um, because yeah. he's got all the preoccupations of a savok person. But you, but you know, know one thing I, I want to say, because um, we generally talk to different people who are like, uh, from the Soviet Union and might have been emigrates, uh, like very cultured part of intelligentsia in St. Petersburg, Moscow. We have friends like that of different ages, older too, like Sorokin, who either lived for a long time outside of Russia and whatnot. And actually, one of the things we kind of discovered, which I, I think, I mean, at least to me seems true, that one of the actually very Savok thing in a way uh, of uh, that class of uh, Soviet people is to be kind of willfully... Well, is it the right word? Thinking about that gentry old pre-Soviet, uh, pre-October Revolution days, which is, like, I don't see it as a three different modes of existence. That is a very savoc thing because one of the things of, uh, in part of my family is like that basically the intelligentsia, Soviet people always, uh, kind of hated Soviet Union, even if they didn't have it personally that bad there and thought that the old days were great because they thought of themselves as even if they were not uh, b- directly blood wise like that as this kind of like at least minor gentry living <laughs> really nicely in the countryside with uh, I assume with surrounded by <laughs> mujik whatever with servants and stuff you know ideally because that's life how like that. they were in the Soviet Union on some level right I mean like they were kind of a gentry class because they were somewhat privileged they didn't have to do manual labor they was a, like labor of the mind you know i uh, guess but yeah. well they hated it whatever and it wasn't yeah. a kind of ugly society but anyway do, do you know what i mean max that is actually is the one and the same that is savok yeah i think <laughs> like that of the of the pre pre soviet russia I, I see what you mean but i guess i think at a certain point the issues we turn it, it turns into like insider baseball right where it's like that could mm. if we're looking at it as art i think what makes it interesting would be that sort of um multifacetedness within the context of russia that's definitely true that there is i mean just look at like cafe pushkin with the like um yes. pre-reform orthography <laughs> uh but at the same time i guess it's vladimir takes it further as well though where like um a savoak would be like oh to live in like um Dyadya vanya to live in uncle vanya right but, <laughs> right. but like sorokin's like um oh i really like um sort of 17th century Russian speech. I think we should go back to that. So he, he sort of pushes in a more extreme direction. Um, mm, interesting. And I, I think he really does. So, I mean, I don't know. For me, at least, it's he hates Russia, but also loves it. And, and I, No, I get it. I have that. I get. I totally get it. I think a, a lot of Russian thinking people have that. Yeah, yeah. And I think that, so maybe that's, but that problematizes the Western liberal thing, at least a, a little bit, I think. In a, in, a, mm-hmm. in a way that at least for people reading him outside of Russia is, um, is interesting. You know, I wanted to get something actually about to, – to religion, right? Mm-hmm. Because, um, I, you know, reading your interview, I was actually – I want to actually start with a, a personal question because I, I found – it was just an aside uh, in the interview um, we'll, that we'll actually link to it in the post. Uh, but you said that when you started reading Dostoevsky, it, it made you a, a Christian, kind, yeah, I mean, is that true? Kind of, yeah. I mean, it's sort of an aestheticized mode of just like uh, liking the aesthetics of religion, sort of believing it in a vague way, not like a 
So, was it specifically Russian Orthodox? No, you mean, no, did no, you no, actually, no, 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 no. Ah, okay. Just more like reading, reading Brothers Karamazov and being like, yeah, it is more beautiful to believe. And then being like, okay. That's true. That's interesting. Well, that's, that's, yeah, that's interesting because, well, then I, then I saw you and then you said that, you know, Sorokin is himself a, a kind of a religious, you know, yeah, he's actually, he's actually devoutly religious. religious. Yeah. You mean like Russian Orthodox in the kind of, you know, not showy way again, <laughs> but in profound way, yes, right? Yes, Just yes, for himself. Yes, exactly. Yes. He got, so that's part of the, that's part, so that makes, it's part of what you're talking about, right? The, the, that he loves certain parts of, of Russia, so he hates certain parts of it. Unironically, right. And, yes. and yeah. then mm-hmm. actually deeply loves, so he's a Russian Orthodox then, yes, right? Yes, yes. So like, I mean, well, I was going to say the first part of Raman is just about like um, the beauty of a Russian Orthodox uh, rural existence that isn't totally, I th- I see it as being distinct from the more cliche Chehovian mode that would be sort of what the Savok would long for in the sense that it's very, very, rural and it's very attached to the rhythms of rurality in terms of like hunting and and so i I don't know i think um for me it's a bit deeper than the sort of like uh i don't know (laughs) um ministers who like go with their wives in um rolls royce to like restaurants in the center of moscow that have the old-fashioned style i think it's a bit deeper but Especially because he really is religious in a in, in a sort mm-hmm. of deep way, and I think that's again what makes it sort of interesting at a deep level. Because I think if it were just a liberal screed, um, Day of the Apricnik specifically, but some of his other books more generally, I think it would just be boring. I agree. No, yeah, there's something yeah. sublime there, so exactly. we're not yeah. here exactly. like that, trying yeah. to demean to mean anything. Because I I no, definitely. No, no. <laughs> You know, there's a, like, it definitely goes into metaphysics and it's sublime often. And you can feel it in its, as Nabokov, I think, would say, like, in your spine. It's not even, like, I don't know how. Yes. It's not intellectual. I read it and it's like, <laughs> so yeah, I, I, I give it to him for sure. But what I'm curious, I still try, just for myself, I want to understand, because I kind of grew up, grew up around his name, you know, like, always knowing his name, even if I didn't start reading, um, him until, like, slightly later in life. But, um, Generally, do, do you, do you know about this re- religious aspect, which is again, unironic? Um, it, you know, he's a Soviet person. So was he secretly baptized in Soviet Union or he yep. came to that later no, in he, life? He got baptized when he was 25. Actually, right when he started writing. And this is also what makes it interesting. He got baptized when he was 25, secretly in the Soviet Union. It caused a big fight with his parents. I, I know. Uh huh. I think he talks about it in the documentary. Um, like his parents made fun of him for doing it, I think. Um, Sarokin <laughs> trip. It's a good documentary. It's on. It's on. Can- well, we watched it in a movie theater in Moscow. In nice. Moscow, yeah. <laughs> nice. yeah. Um, and so he has uh, the. That's a, another complexity, right? So at the same time as he started writing these books that were very critical of Russianness, that coincided exactly with his baptism in the Russian Orthodox Church. Mm, interesting. But back then, among certain, because I had a, a dad basically like that who got baptized when he was, I guess, 40. But anyway, so that was also very, um, sort of radical, nonconformist thing to do among against Soviet intelligentsia, just like narratively, if I want to like put it in some perspective, I understand that it was his personal thing, but I know of people who did that secretly and kind of it was like definitely i would say now rock and roll and all that um so no but it, it was yeah, so it I, was. I i don't know and and i i i i don't uh, say there's no faith uh, <laughs> true like i don't know faith that 
connected to it or or that they were not sincere but there was a certain <laughs> mini, was a certain mini, social uh, mini, cultural movement that yeah like small part of it. Yes. small building like all of this yeah. so yeah so i don't i, I don't know if um kind of you, you know this kind of whole <laughs> whole movement anyway you know to turn against the soviet project to be no, completely um you know disenchanted um and turning to kind of this yeah. Some, some other people found something else. I don't know, turning like <laughs> to Judaism or whatnot. Became Zionists <laughs> or whatever. Like Zionists, you know? actually, yeah. I would say. Even, uh, and some some went to Russian Orthodoxy, but uh, but yeah, but but it's interesting you say that. So in a way, it was part of him being definitely disappointed in, in I guess, in the Soviet project, unlike his parents. But at at the same time, kind of going into this like deep Russia, right? So for him, it was I don't know what connecting to some Russian roots. Uh, what well, I, I don't even know how else he to just talks, the whole. He talks about it as being a pure um, uh, um, moment of just believing. He actually describes it pretty accurately in Raman. So he actually was super interesting as well. And here's where again I think that w- where I find the sublime located in this sort of mm, set of characteristics is so in part three or four three I think of. Norma. Um, there's a section where the guy finds the manuscript at the ruined house, and the manuscript is just sort of the ode to Russianness that ends in the earth fucking. <laughs> um, Vladimir hides a lot of his own characteristics in that manuscript that ends in the whole thing being destroyed, and he hides a lot of them in Raman. So for him, it's it's this weird sort of very multivalent thing where um actual moment of beginning to believe in a very deep way into the in this Russian Orthodox uh, system of beliefs coincides with um a more active sort of engagement aesthetic engagement against the Soviet Union, which also can, coincides with um I don't know, also deconstructing those older systems of belief that he has bought into by converting. So I think, I mean, maybe these are relatively common characteristics in a certain way, but I think the the combination of them made, allowed for the possibility of the creation of great art. Uh, speaking of, you know, just the, the sort of the, the politics uh, uh, around, you know, the Russian Orthodoxy and sort of the, the Russian Orthodox Church, and you know how close it is to obviously the Kremlin and to to power now. And um, I mean, is he? <laughs> I don't know. Does he worry that he's going to be excommunicated or something? Because it's like uh, you know he might be devout, but um, I don't know. I think he's you know, a, his work can be written. Yeah, I think yeah. he's a Russian Orthodox Gnostic. I don't think he ever really goes gotcha. to church. So I think it just sort of like makes sense. Makes sense. Yeah, that makes sense. Yeah. yeah. Yeah, but I don't know. I've been thinking a lot of just about about this issue of like the whole Soviet project and um, obviously complete failure of it and all that. But you you uh, keep saying how obviously his art um, or like his um, writing, his novels um, cannot be distilled to any like one particular even like set of political beliefs or anything like this. But overall, you can't say that at least you can distill it to the fact um, that he fully um 
basically not just uh, was not and is uh, disappointed in the in the Soviet Union and the Soviet project, um, but also completely um, completely dis- was disenchanted fully even in the attempt of this because it was a project of enlightenment in a way. Maybe it was a um, <laughs> like a how, how to put it <laughs> um, a very warped <laughs> enlightenment in a way the way it was um, organized, but ideas behind it. We're definitely not, uh, I don't know, not backwards, not barbaric. They're not, not ideas uh, of the Tsar. They were ideas, yeah. Yeah, yeah. not, yeah. Uh, definitely very, I guess now it would be called progressive, <laughs> even. Uh, not, not how it was realized, but kind of the, um, the set of beliefs behind it. And so he definitely goes against all of us because if he ha- ha felt, um, if he was compelled to go towards like Russian orthodoxy in his twenties and he, he stayed there. So for him, Russia is is that like basically he uh, he's kind of one of those um, not uh, you know there are a lot of again Russian liberals overall who deny any importance of Russian revolution um, completely like basically negate or I don't know what else what what's a good word to describe it do you know do you know what I'm saying yeah, yeah. No, well negate's a good word I was just thinking that maybe you could describe Sorokin as like a Hegelian but in his own head <laughs> so that like he's um constantly just uh sublating ideals and and everything is sort of at war with itself in a sort of fractalized way uh i don't because again i think what you're saying like the idea that he went against the progressive elements of the soviet union i'm not mm-hmm. maybe that's an interesting idea i don't think it's quite true i don't know i think i think for him also a lot of this is instinctual and on the mode of in, in the mode of the interesting thing, though, I will say that I was thinking as well is that in the last year, he's really become vocal about wanting Russia itself to collapse in a way that I think goes well beyond most Russian uh, liberals. Like he says, Russia should collapse. Um, hmm. It should be divided up. Like Russia has become just too much like of a Teluria. monster. Like Yeah, exactly. exactly. <laughs> Literally like Teluria. Exactly. <laughs> interesting. You'd be surprised though. You know, I mean, I um, have friends, you know, in Russia who are not like overly, polit- were never really overly political. You know, they're kind of like, I guess, kind of soft liberals or whatever. And, you know, the, the wars, you know, they live in Russia, and but the wars really radicalized them, you know, against uh, their own country. And, um, and they would say this to me, you know. Uh, yeah, that's fair. I mean, uh, while still living there, yeah. I don't yeah, mean to so say I, it. I, I, yeah, Vladimir can be a product of his times for sure. I mean, and I think he. Yeah. He no, is. it's. I mean, I'm not trying to belittle what his thoughts, but I'm just. I, I, I'm just trying to. Yeah, that he's actually kind of a that's radicalized a lot of people. Yeah, it's it's interesting. Yeah, and it, and he's and he's saying that he's saying this publicly. Yeah, yeah, yeah. It's. In, I know. Yeah. yeah. Um, and he's saying like last last couple of days he gave an interview in German where he said. Um, Every Russian is guilty, which I think Russian liberals are very anxious to say that's not true. Um, and he says that every Russian is guilty because we didn't deconstruct our, our heritage. Um, we didn't deconstruct our, wow. our inheritance of the Soviet Union um, properly. Yeah. So I think I, I mean, illustration, kind of that type of thing, right? Yes. Which I kind of kind of it's funny. Sort of yeah, a, it's agree to, yeah. to, to some to some degree for sure. Yeah. Yeah. But actually, since you're the the translator of Teluria and you're really close to, uh, close to this, do you think in some ways then can that be prophetic too? <laughs> Speaking of disintegration, maybe I actually didn't realize the extent to which, and I didn't realize this until um, last year, mm-hmm. until the war started. I didn't realize the extent to which it actually is a utopian novel because Russia has been destroyed 
Um, huh? Not to stop in, but you talk. They have yeah. good drugs too. Yes. Yeah. <laughs> good drugs are important. Which is something that you can't say about Russia. You know, generally yeah, speaking, yeah. you know, it's the, just alcohol. They don't have good drugs, drugs there, man. Yeah. Um. Vladimir, Vladimir, <laughs> even though there are a lot of drugs in his books, now has um, now believes that literature is the strongest drug. <laughs> Oh, uh, interesting. Well, yeah, or just generally any kind of VR films, like you anything you can plug the into. Definition of drugs here, here <laughs> yeah. pretty thinly, but yeah, but yeah, no, it's uh, that's interesting. I mean, that's kind of what I always found the most unrealistic about his novels. I mean, the ones that have this stuff is the drugs. You know, it's, I don't know. They're like too good. <laughs> they're too. They're yeah. Well, he was. Um, you maybe weren't hanging out with the right people in the '90s in Moscow. <laughs> <laughs> yeah, but they're not especially. Uh, but you know, speaking of drugs, I just remember there's uh, Diaries of Patricia Hugsmith. Do I pronounce right? Hugsmith. How you pronounce Hi. her name? Patricia Hugsmith. Sure. Anyway, you, you know what I'm talking about Talented Mr. Ripley yeah, woman. Yeah. Anyway, her diaries were published, I think, fairly recently. And I was like flipping through them. And um, <clears throat> she was like an obsessive kind of diarist. And one of the things, <laughs> yeah, she was pretty seemed to be like dark, kind of depressive woman. And at some point she started thinking after she already wrote, um, I think, quite many, like many novels. There was this diary entry that, um, that said, uh, I'm not sure if literature is any any better than hard drugs. <laughs> because, well, that's back to your element. Yeah, because it is kind of like that, but then what if you start getting disappointed in its power, then like, well, maybe yeah. maybe drugs are better. Vladimir has a whole hierarchy of books where he has um, great books are hard drugs, like heroin, and, and okay yes. books yes. are like marijuana. So like if you read <laughs> a random book off of the shelf that like maybe won the National Book Award last year, you go, okay, that was an okay joint. But if you read Ulysses or like Brothers Karamazov, it's heroin. So he that he really speaks about books in those terms, which I, I like a lot. Wait, wait, there was a story. God, what is it called? The Stayevsky trip, yeah, yeah, right, right, right. Well, it's literally that. Or a play. It's kind of like a play. Yeah, yeah. So he believes yeah. that. That's, that. That's how he talks about He always says, like, uh -huh. I've been waiting for a, a new Russian hard drug for a long time now. Are there any are there any novels that he considers acid or um, <laughs> probably I mean I like maybe Bielly, <laughs> Petersburg. I like that. But does he? Um, so he basically wait, kind of have been waiting for a new drug, hard drug. Yeah. But according to him, nothing has come yet. Yeah, he doesn't think he doesn't think there's been a good Russian book for like 20 years, probably other than his own. <laughs> I, I guess I, I probably agree. I haven't encountered anything really yeah. interesting, but yeah, the dr the drug thing, yeah. huh? But what's this? Um, since we're I don't know focused on him, uh, about the ca category of hard drugs books. Mm. Oh, what what does he put in that category? Very few contemporary books. The only contemporary books mm -hmm. he really considers to be hard drugs are like um, Glamorama by Brett Easton Ellis. Oh, I love that one. Yeah, it's good. The Kindly Ones by Jonathan Littell. Yeah. Uh, and then um, 1979 by C Christian Kracht, a uh, Swiss writer. Other than that, he doesn't really – but mostly it's it's stuff like Dostoevsky or Tolstoy or Turgenev or, um, or um, Muzil or, you know, just the big, the big hitters. He's a big believer right. in, in oh. canon, I guess. <laughs> yeah, well, I love Musil. Does he like Proust? No, he does not like Proust. <laughs> really? Yeah, yeah, he doesn't like... I think that's a mode that's... Vladimir doesn't really have, like, a Henry James or Proust side, I don't think. 
that's sort of alien to him. Okay. <laughs> Interesting. <laughs> well, I actually wanted to ask you about just uh, one thing I'm curious about, you know, because I mean, he's obviously like a cult figure in Russia, you mm -hmm. know, and um, a cult literary figure in Russia. But um, in the West, you know, I mean, what's his I, – I can't say like I know too many people that have read read his books here in, in America at least, you know. And, and what's his – I mean, what's the, the – you know, the kind of the American publishing side of it, you know? Like are, is he – is has he? I don't know. I don't want to who's take it cr crudely right? no, in like sales or whatever. But I'm. Just, but just just generally, like, yeah, who's the audience? Is he? Is he? Is he? Like, when did he? I don't know. People know who he is, even over. Yeah, you know, yeah, I mean, yeah. aside from a small, <laughs> small like New York literary, you know, set of um, set. Um, like, do people know who he is? Because I don't. The project is sort of right now relaunching him and, and building his reputation, his name, uh, because. I think after the first few books that came out, definitely not that many people knew who he was. I think um, mm -hmm. his reputation is growing. I think since we're putting out like all 12 of his books, um, people are taking notice and there's, uh, you know, increasing acclaim and interest. Uh, right. There's the big New York Times profile. We got reviewed in like every single big um, magazine and newspaper and America, pretty much. Um, but whose project is this? You said mine, a... mine and his. Yeah, just ours. I, ah, it's basic. Oh, oh, oh right. Uh, we right. up together. <laughs> yeah. <laughs> <laughs> but, I mean, but okay, so the publishers, you know, because I know I have a little bit of uh, experience, you know, with the publishing world, and you know, it's it's very, it's a public. The publishing world is all about mostly about obviously sales and numbers, right? Yeah, yeah. And so I mean, so so is this like you know because the New York New York Review of books? I'm just curious about like the. That side of the business, you know, which is about, you know, about basically trying to publish, you know, literature that uh, or books that don't necessarily have a ready-made market, right, and yeah. aren't necessarily going to be profitable. Is that like, how does that work, or can you, you know, like, why, why, why is it being published? I mean, who's putting the putting the money up for this? You like, why <laughs> is it just a kind of a vanity thing? Is it a is no, it a thing no, because no. someone wants to? NYRB yeah. sells a ton of his books. His books actually sell very well in, in America. Okay, um, and uh, it's, uh, I think it's there's this. A feeling that he's a, an important writer who there's interest mm -hmm. in and who hasn't been read enough and hasn't been translated enough. And I think after Blue Lard, it really will be kind of a different ball game for him because that book is such a kind of classic, uh, in my opinion. And I think that people will sort of see that. But no, New York Review of Books sells a lot of copies. Um, and uh, there's been sort of a, a steady groundswell of attention and interest in his work based on the translations that have been coming out. And I think it's only going to grow. So no, but it's mm -hmm. but New York review of books, actually even ice trilogy. They sell a lot of the Q sells. Okay. Dave, the Aprichnik sells a lot. Um, of course. Makes sense. Yeah. <laughs> yeah. It's yeah. A good one. But, but you know, it's actually kind of good. To, I mean, it's horrible to talk about the war in the skin, but uh, for Sorokin personally and for you, I guess, too, good timing because in a way now because of the war and we don't know how long it's going to last and Putin's rule and all that, in a way now he's truly going to become an emigre writer, right? Mm -hmm. Which he probably never planned. Is that is that what's happening? Yeah, I don't think he'd want to say that, but I think effectively, yes. I also think like, uh, God, the war is like the most horrible thing ever. But I think that it does show the extent to which um, he's not writing in a fantasy world. And like, yes. you know, like we were talking about. So I think someone reading their four hearts at the time they did, didn't, um, didn't go, Oh, this guy really is a perv. Um, they went, okay. <laughs> he understands something about how Russian metaphysics operates and about Russian violence. So I think, um, 
the war contextualizes his work in a way that makes it more comprehensible because Americans don't pay attention to things unless they're really big and problematic. So it wasn't like they knew that much about Russia was just, I mean, I think most Americans probably think of Russia as essentially being like a, I don't know, like a snow, a giant snow, snow swept plane that looks a little bit like Vienna. Um, I don't think Americans really know that much about how it looks or what it is. So. Right. So you need to actually just, yeah. I just think it's con- something the, big. the context of when he's coming out has um, mm-hmm. uh, allowed people to read him more accurately. Right. Especially with their four hearts um, and Tularia. I mean, I just think like it's not, um, it's not a personal benefit because the war is the worst thing ever, but the war is a yes. background is just um, allows people to read Sorokin more accurately. I agree. And, and I, I have to admit that if it, uh, it is that way for me as well, mm-hmm. even though I'm Russian and we're supposed to be more sort of uh, <laughs> in, in tune with this before, but the war kind of in a way, um, yeah, turned me more into, yeah, well, I think, maybe more appreciative, appreciative, I guess. Yeah. What it is, it just is sort of like, it was an illustration of his correctness. It wasn't like, it's not, it's yes. not a personal benefit thing. It's just that like, he's been writing about the things that have led to this war for a very long time. And so it's not, mm-hmm. it's just a um, validation of what he's been writing about. Because he yeah, and validation of his like of his I don't even know what artist sense or yeah, 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 he's just in tune with something deeper, yeah. yeah, yeah, yeah. Like basically, he proved himself to be a true Lynch, not some just guy inventing yeah. funny stories, yeah, yeah. <laughs> funny macabre stories. Yeah, and I think his, <laughs> no. his reception has um, sort of been. It's not just to do with the war; it has to do with a lot. I think because when I first was interested in him. In maybe 2011, 2012, I still think he was viewed as a fringe figure. I don't think he was mm-hmm. viewed that at quite as seriously. And then through the last 10 years, I think there have been a lot of shifts in the way he's been seen. Because you would still see with like um, older Russian professors sometimes, they'd be like, Sarokim, это же вообще не литература. <laughs> like uh, <laughs> and, and I, I heard a lot of stuff like that. Um, it, and yeah, or something like postmodernist. Yeah, 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 exactly. And that's it, and that's it. It's like, okay, is it like bad? Postmodern, like calling him postmodernist as if it, that's the end yeah. of story. Yeah, no, exactly. <laughs> so, I, but I think people, no one would say that now. I think people sometimes be yeah. like, oh, like it's hard, it's hard to stomach sometimes, but it's very important. Um, uh-huh. Actually, I have such a funny story. Thank you. This is not really related, but it's pretty funny. Um, uh huh. You know the Ukrainian movie, The Tribe. No. Nope. What is it in in, in Ukraine? What in oh. Russian or Ukrainian? I, I think it's Pleme. Yeah, yeah, yeah. I mean, it's. I think it's Pleme in Ukrainian, which might be the same word. But it's a. So it's sort of relatedly. It, you'll understand why I'm bringing this up at the end. But um, so when. I was at Columbia for undergrad and I did the Russian summer school, which was like six hours a day of Russian with my very lovely, wonderful teacher um, who I owe a lot to, Ala Alexandrovna Smyslova. Um, and we would do cultural excursions in the city a couple times a week. Um, it was like an intensive immersion program, et cetera, et cetera. And um so we'd kind of be on the lookout for any Russian stuff going on. And one day in the news, I saw, like in the paper or online, I saw 
that a Ukrainian movie was playing called The Tribe at Film Forum. So I just said, oh, we should go as a class. And so we made a plan to go. Um, and everyone went and turned out that I couldn't go the same day as everyone else. So everyone went on Saturday afternoon and I had plans. So I ended up going on Sunday afternoon because we were going to have, you know, little discussions and pairs about the movie come Monday. And it turned out to be the most violent and insane movie ever. Like there's unsimulated sex, there's an abortion scene. And there is, it's, it was like NC-17 to the max. And so I'm watching this on Sunday afternoon, knowing that my whole class has watched it the day before without me, with my, with poor, lovely Ala Alexandrovna. I was just walked into class on Monday, so worried. And I felt so sheepish. But then the first thing, Ala takes me off to the side and she says, Max. In Russian, obviously, but I'll say in English. Uh, uh, I have to say, that movie was terribly difficult to watch. Terribly difficult. <laughs> but watching such things is very important. I learned a lot. <laughs> Thank you. Благодарю тебя, Макс. Это было очень важно. And so I think that, <laughs> that's now the attitude that uh, those same professors who would have said, Сорокин, это вообще не литература. They now say, so it's like that transition has happened for for a variety of reasons, but uh, yeah. Interesting, interesting. He's become yeah. Yeah, so it's it's Good weird story. the war. I know we keep saying yeah, it's horrible, but it's like a for personal artistic purposes, it's almost like that's the proof of yeah. the quality well, of that his receptors, you know, because there's something he's like in tune with something. Yeah, yeah. I think it's um. I don't know. I mean, I think... Очень важно. Yeah. <laughs> yeah. It's interesting in general. I think... Um, Isn't the go Goida Goida uh, is the, the... Oh, right. You've probably seen it, right? Yeah, you've yeah, seen the thing that they're actually the screaming was, the, the clip. And, and, yeah. and no one's still sure. Was it ironic? Did he read Sarokin <laughs> and kind of like did the Goida yell, no, you know, yell Goida in the, what is it, Red Square? Or it was something else and it wasn't about Sorokin. What do you know? Like, uh, what's your theory? I don't know. I mean, that's, a, that's, um, Vladimir says, said that a few times on the two when people asked. He said, people have started to ask me if I think the Kremlin is using Day of the Aprichnik as a manual. <laughs> well, I certainly hope, yes. I hope not. Um, so I, I don't, I mean, <laughs> maybe that's the other thing, right? Is that Putin was, had that sort of enlightened despotism, postmodern dictator thing much more before, but where like Putin before, it would be harder to guess what his tactics would have been. But the Kremlin now using Sarokin as a manual is a little hard to believe. Um, it's hard to believe. Supposedly Surkov is not part of it anymore. I would believe it more if we knew that those kind of like um, more avant-garde characters yes. are part of the government. But as far as we know, they're kind of not. It seems, but I, I, it what it do looks I pretty dumb and pretty pretty knucklehead kind of stuff. I don't What's know. Now? At this point, yes. at this point, I don't know. It's like it's, yeah, it just, that's, that's how it seems to me at least. Yeah, yeah. Vladimir and I talked about it a lot with them before. I think Putin has always been, you know, a motherfucker. And, um, uh, but before it was like, this guy sucks, but he's a good strategist in a certain kind of way. And, and Vladimir has talked about this too, how it seems like he lost a strategic step. Like Vladimir didn't think they were going to invade Ukraine. 
Wanting to cement his legacy, because I, I mm-hmm. think back to if you look at the difference between the annexation of Crimea and this, it's it's very different tactics. You know, when you hold a referendum and do a very swift military operation, it's much more difficult for the mechanisms of international attention to be directed properly. But to do just this very old-fashioned, brutal war, it's like it seemed because everyone before thought he was it was like the enlightened despot idea right like oh he, he's clever yes. about it but um well he didn't think it was going to be a, a brutal war that's the whole fucking ridiculousness yeah, he yeah, thought yeah. he was going to take kiev in a matter of days i mean you know that's the that's the whole wait but this is delusional no, well that's so... the whole that's the whole that's the i mean then they started uh, you know then they started revving this up when when this operation failed and then you know then started pretending that that was the plan all along and it was actually a, you know it was the whole thing was it was actually uh you know like a meant to be a screen for like a larger invasion or whatever you know so i guess but no but so yeah I, so like he's just it was a total fucking nightmare you know and he, yeah he just blundered right into it and he his so yeah like like it like this war in a way you know showed sorokin's kind of perception this war also showed putin's it kind of you know showed that he's not the, the brilliant guy that everyone thinks he is and definitely. so um don't you think that the, so, yeah, the putin yeah, of 2014 yeah. would have held referendums in the donbass or something and then like annex them singly I mean that's the delusion I guess this he thought he could just go right in there and that he believed that Ukraine was just that a really um you know but, like a but cardboard But do you think in 2014 he would have acted differently? Right. You mean now? Or you no. mean, I mean like Max has to think that, like, he's changed in some significant way whether from illness or from something else. I think he's gotten a lot more bitter probably you know and and a lot more um um kind of maximalist about things maybe because in realizing that probably things will never no matter, you know, it'll always be a worsening situation with the West, and the West will never sort of accept Russia as on any kind of equal footing, you know, as any kind of equal partner, you know. And so, and so, yeah, I do think, I do think that, I don't know, my sense of it is that there is a, also an element of legacy in the sense that he's like not getting any younger. And, and so, what is he going to be remembered for as a guy who just sort stability. of stability and kind of, and it was always, you know, while pushing back in the West, but always essentially forced to take their terms on everything, mm-hmm. right? Um, and so in a way, it's like he, – and he believed the, the – you know, that he could do this lightning strike against Kiev and you know, take control of this territory and put a friendly government in there mm-hmm. and sort of fortify his position and fortify his legacy. And I mean, there was multifaceted probably, you know, the things. Yeah. I don't think – I don't know. I don't have any insight about his health or not, but it doesn't seem like he's. I mean, the all I think that I can see is that he's, you know, has massive plastic surgery done, and he's, you know, pumping himself full of fillers and things like that, and um, and is increasingly looking like, you know, basically, uh, a, I don't know, like he looks like a babushka, you know, more and more. A babushka is trying to pretend like she's not aging, you know. Um, I guess. So what I would say is, that, so I mean, that's the only thing that health-wise I can tell. Mm-hmm. Yeah, yeah. Go ahead. I think the theory that I I sort of buy is that. Um, 
uh, I think he was very isolated during COVID, right? Um, mm-hmm. And I think that I, I, for whatever reason, I think he was ill, whether or not he's dying. I don't think he's probably dying. Um, and I think he spent a lot of time in the Kremlin library looking at maps and, and looking at old maps of the Ruski Mir. And I kind of, I, I see that as maybe being a good explanation, the combination of aging a bit, wanting to cement his legacy, being sick and isolated and going a bit, you know, getting cabin fever mm-hmm. um, with this old, what, who was the guy who was quarantining with him all the time too? The, um, I forget, I, I read about this a while ago, the very crazy guy who quarantined with him an awful lot. Um, hmm. Part of the, uh, I, I forget. I w- either, uh, maybe I wouldn't know. But I think, yeah. I think, um, Reality turned out to be even more Sorokinian than than Sorokin thought it would. I guess is the is the fundamental thing. Yeah, I mean it's pretty ad hoc. This whole stuff, you know. I mean that's that's what we were kind of laughing at when we were watching it. You know the the Z the Z symbology and you know the, the Novorossiya. Like it's just um, you know it was. But it's it, not funny anymore. No, it's Think not funny. But it was ad hoc in the sense like it wasn't it wasn't like the there's this whole campaign masterminded in the background and then sort of unloaded you know it's, it, it is looked very like they were just sort stupid. of it's unbelievable it's yes. so, but they were like it was like they, they were like pulling pulling this stuff out of their hat and like trying to like make things work it wasn't it, it was it was just not planned i mean it was pretty clearly not planned you know i don't know i uh your theory about this whole yeah. covid and the maps is probably as good as any other but one of the things that despite all the theories and some sort of some sort of explanations that people can offer i'm I still cannot believe this is happening, partially because one of the things is like Putin is the age, actually exactly of my mom. Uh, and um, these are the people who, you know, they're kind of baby boomers, right? The generation of the post-World War. And <clears throat> being from Russia, it's just hard to believe that this is these are the people because they, they're the ones who started it. <laughs> sure, the, the young ones have to die there, but they're the ones who, who are orchestrating all this, could do this. I actually... Like, on any level, I don't know, logical, metaphysical. I, I, I cannot believe this because one of the things like they sort of supposedly should have kind of gotten through their parents who either like clearly lived through the war in one way or another is that this shouldn't like this shouldn't be going on. You know, you don't take the tanks yeah. and just go pummel through. Yeah. Well, it's just so stupid at every level. And it's also not like I, I talked so Jonathan the French writer who I also translate, um, he spends a lot of time in Ukraine and he and I talked uh-huh. about it a fair bit. And, um, I've also, I also read his articles when they come out and he talks about, jo- you mean Jonathan Little? Yeah. You say he would write you, about you, Russia yeah, too. Yeah, mm-hmm. it's, I think it's Littell. Littell. Yeah. Yeah. But uh, Littell, I, sorry. I used to say Little before I knew him too, <laughs> but he talks about how the, the system of war that Ukraine is using is much more modern. How, and he knows a lot of people in the Ukrainian government. Even he, he spent a lot of time there before, before the war happened. And um, how Russia is just doing everything in such an old-fashioned way that's so ill-considered and stupid. And it's just, I don't, it, it is kind of unbelievable because it just seems so, like you're saying, I mean, just poorly thought out, ad hoc. I don't, it's something that I can't even really grasp that um, the thing, it, it's sort of like um, they suddenly. But t- also counterintuitive, yeah, yeah, right? Yeah, exactly, like, exactly. You, the, One of the things, you, you know, you've been to Russia, so even if if not, 
even if not for super long, you immediately notice this whole um, May parade and just generally the celebration of the victory over Nazis in Second World War yeah, yeah. is like a big thing, big identity. It doesn't matter if you're anti-Soviet or whatnot, even people who are like super liberal anti-Soviet, they, you know, they, they fought it. They had some maybe grandparents who died in it, the parents or whatnot, some relatives. And now one thing that immediately happened, and definitely that's just, that's a goner. I feel like in some ways the memory or any kind of, I don't know, what's the word, pride about that is gone because they're using that rhetoric about that they won the Second World War to justify this war and saying they uh, basically won over Nazis then and they're going to win over Nazis now, so which is totally insane and it destroyed any kind of legacy yeah. uh, of that victory, which was bloody and horrible, yeah. but like it happened and people are sort of, you know, proud of it. Vladimir has yeah. this story, Smirnov, I don't know if you've read it, from... The collection Manaklon. It's about the mm, no. No. A, a veteran who goes to a protest that's being held um, outside a historian's apartments, and they're protesting mm-hmm. the historian for saying that too many Soviet tanks were lost during a big battle. I forget what one, and um, too few German tanks were lost. And they're protesting this, and they're saying this can't be true. You know, he's a member of the fifth column. He's a liar. He's a saboteur of Russia. And this is in the post-Soviet space. And what happens is uh, the protest of old man veterans becomes so large that um, the historian eventually opens his curtains and holds a mirror and reflects the sun into their eyes with the mirror. And the, the main character, Smirnov, gets the sun reflected into his eyes, but he doesn't turn away and he stares into the mirror until he faints. And when he wakes up, he runs away from the protest and starts this sort of like fantastical massacre in a grocery store where eventually everyone in the grocery store dies. And I think that's sort of like the situation of, of Russia today, that the the zombie Smirnov has come back to, to life and is uh, starting a terrible massacre. But it's like these weird historical zombies that are sort of... Yeah. You mean like Soviet zombies? Yeah, in yeah, yeah, yeah. Soviet that? zombies, exactly. Mm-hmm. It's, a, it's a really good story, though. <laughs> I recommend it. Well, one thing, he's very prolific. Yes, he <laughs> so I need uh, to catch up with many things. Well, one question I can not ask you now, thinking about it as at least as a Russian. Uh, internally in Russia, uh, <laughs> there has been always this, I don't know, what is it, semi-feud, at least among the fans of Pilevin versus oh, yeah. Sorokin. <laughs> it, it seems like, right? Yes. I, I'm neither, neither I, I just don't know where I stand. I like Generation P as a book, but overall I'm definitely not a fan of Pilevin. Where, where like... Where do you stand uh, as a translator and, like, you know, a person who learned Russian? Because you probably read some of Pidevin. What, what, what do you think of all of this? I think in the last 10 years, in the same way that Sorokin's reputation has grown and people have started to see him as a much more serious writer and canonized him to the point where he's a living classic, everyone says, mm-hmm. I think Pidevin, the exact opposite has happened. I think whereas when I started right. studying Russian, people sort of thought of Pidevin as being important. And uh, a competitor with Sarokin, I think that in the last 10 years, mm-hmm. he's been sort of totally discredited. I think he writes a bad book every year. I think his prose was never... For no reason. Yeah, yeah, yeah. <laughs> Too much. It, yeah, his prose was never very good, but it's now even worse. I think it's aged badly. I think if you want to talk about a, a phenomenon we could historicize, we should talk about uh-huh. Yevin's, uh Buddhism, which is just aged so badly and looks so stupid, I think. Um, so I, I really, right. 
I don't like Billy Event <laughs> very much. Uh huh. But did did you like or do you still like at least you know historically speaking Generation P? It's okay. Yeah, I don't think it's very well written. I don't think he's a very good writer. I don't think I I I'd much prefer like uh I don't know for me in terms of 20th century Russian literature I much prefer like Limonov's early novels to Pedevin. Well, it's very different kind of animal. Yeah, yeah, yeah. But yeah. I just don't think I don't think like I don't think of Pedevin as being Mm -hmm. Okay. <laughs> Interesting. Yeah. No, well, I'm kind of not a fan. And the Buddhism paradigm is very simplistic and <laughs> kind of gets old as a. Yeah. Yeah. No, I just. As a trick, I guess. What I, all I meant by Billy Monov was just that I think like there are few. I don't think there are that many 20. I mean, 20th century Russian literature is very weird. Um, Wait, what about Nabokov? Nabokov, of course, is amazing. Uh, I love I love Nabokov, but I like Ada the most out of everything huh yeah interesting i may i like i wow well, because i for me it's a bit obviously harder i'm not <laughs> i'm english is not my first language i was reading it in, in english and i maybe made only halfway through maybe i'll try finishing it i, I love his uh gift that, yeah, yeah that is great which in, in russian and russian is amazing i can't actually imagine is it even readable in english or understandable in terms of what he actually did there not really I don't think no. so. It's, it's not possible, right? No. Also, his style, I mean, his early style doesn't translate well because it depends so mm -hmm. much on participles like ayushi, avshi, uh, like those sorts of um, things that in English are much mm -hmm. clunkier to put together. So you just like mm -hmm. the translator uses about a billion witches and that's per sentence. Hmm. Interesting. Oh, wow. Yeah. <laughs> so you could appreciate that, the, the gift only when you could read Russian yeah, yeah, yeah. well, right? I read, when you I, could... Exactly. In fact, I took a whole... I think it's genius, yeah. I took a whole mm -hmm. class uh, with another um, wonderful teacher I had, Kathy Nepomishi, who also passed away. And um, we read all of Nabokov. This was my sophomore year mm -hmm. of college, I think. And I remember reading wow. Da and The Gift in English and being like, this book sucks. I can't... Un I have no <laughs> idea what could make this good. Then you read it in Russian, you get it. But again, it might also yeah. be something that's a little bit too referential. Like, I don't think that book is necessarily going to age that well. It's sort of the ideal book for like a PhD candidate, right? Because... Or it captures emigre, that emigre circle. So it's a history capsule or what do you call it? I don't know. Time capsule, yeah. Uh, it's, uh, yeah, it's time capsules, right? <laughs> so yeah, maybe, who knows? I don't know how it ages, but it's like so... Well, it gets like its own world that's perfectly works like Mobius, what do you call it? Mobius strip? It yeah, kind of Mobius feels very Mobius circle, which is kind of hard, to, actually hard to pull off, I imagine, as a writer. Yeah, I mean, I think the part that maybe has already not aged that well is like the Chernyshevsky jokes, which I feel like people just don't understand, where it's like, why? Uh -huh. I remember when I read it, at least, and I, I mean, I was an undergrad, <laughs> but I wasn't like the least informed reader ever. I remember reading the Chernyshevsky jokes, and I was sort of thinking like, what the hell is this? Like, I don't, why is he so obsessed with making fun of this Chernyshevsky guy for like 150 pages of a 300 page book? Um, but then you, you got it. Why? Yeah, right. Yeah, later. Yeah, of course. Okay. It sort of, it makes, it makes perfect it sense. Does. It's it, like he thought, it does. He, yeah, he thought of him as a sort of proto something that destroyed the world. Yeah, of course. <laughs> she was from. No, it, it makes perfect <laughs> right? sense. But yeah. it doesn't, I just mean like viscerally, mm -hmm. not immediately. Viscerally, that doesn't, you have to know the history of Russian literature pretty well to understand the point of it. 
Yeah, I know. I, I agree. It's probably still very small that what they what they would call target audience yeah, for this. Yeah. So, but, Ada, but does try it, Ada yeah. again. Mm-hmm. I love Ada so much. Yeah, I'll try again. I actually have it on my shelf, and I made it through mm-hmm. some of it. But yeah, I tried reading his late, like very last one to see if he turns senile or not. About what is it like, uh, Arlequin? Do, do you know what? Oh I'm yeah, look about? at the Harlequins. Look at the Arlequins, and you know, I read it fast. It's easy, but I thought mm, there's probably a bit of a warped senility even to Nabokov because that was his last one. He had a Pilevin phase as well, I think, where he just he wrote like <laughs> six books at the end where it's they're not very good, I think. And all kind of like a weird, almost pastiche of his best stuff yes. is like a, I don't know. This felt very weird, even though I read I read it, <laughs> I fully read that that last one. But yeah, I'll maybe try Ada again. Speaking of the last ones, back to Sorokin and the whole emigre thing, which I don't know if he fully acknowledged it to himself or not, but uh, most likely it is. <laughs> Who knows? Maybe it is permanent. Does Does he like Nabokov? Because he might be the the next big thing <laughs> after Nabokov for the Western audience. That's what, Who knows? That's what I actually think is if you tabulate the history of 20th century Russian literature, you kind of mm-hmm. go like, I really like um, the p- a petty demon. I think that's what they call Melkibies. But I like um, mm-hmm. Salagup a lot, even though I think he's like mm-hmm. only a medium writer. He's maybe cocaine. I don't think he's quite heroin. I like uh, petty demon. Then I like uh, Bieli. Then I like Platonov, even though I think Platonov's is a highly localized phenomenon and it's unclear how well he'll age. Um yeah, I don't even know how is it well translated. I don't know. It's, yeah. uh, the translations are good. That, they're also with mm. NYRB. Actually, Chevengur is yeah, coming they, out. Chevengur is coming out next year. Um, they retranslated everything, right? Yep. Of his. Yep. A British translator named Robert Chandler, very good translator. Uh, mm-hmm. And uh, Chevengur is amazing, obviously. But um, I don't know. We'll see in a hundred years uh, what people think of Platonov. It's not clear. Um, yeah. But then, then obviously comes Nabokov. And then comes uh, Sarokin. There's some like highly localized so, Soviet huh. phenomena that um, are kind of, I think, interesting, but not like that Ilf, good. Ilfe Petrov type of thing. Yeah, yeah, yeah. yeah, yeah. Or like Skola mm-hmm. Durakov, like uh, School for Fools. For example, I heard the funniest. This is like, um, talk about Savok or Slavic sandbox. Sarokin, I always talk about the Slavic sandbox. Um, which you want to get out of. Um, that's a big part of our goal. <laughs> um, what does it mean? It just means like you want to be discussed as a world literary phenomenon. You don't want to be discussed just as a Russian literary phenomenon. Huh. Uh, so think of... A world, yeah. a world literary phenomenon by which institutions? <laughs> I mean, by like... Uh, yeah. You know how like... <laughs> think about how people discuss like... Um, you can discuss... Kafka. As, I get it. Yeah, I get yeah, it. Yeah, I'm yeah. just. I'm just. I'm being. I'm being. I'm just joking. Around. I like it. Yeah. No, I get. I get it. But wait. But so Sorokin himself does like Nabokov. Loves Nabokov. Well, yeah, yeah, love, yeah. Appreciate Nabokov. Yes, right. Loves Nabokov. Yeah. He's, I mean. Well, actually, yeah. Mm-hmm. No, no. Sorry. Go, go no, ahead. He, does, he, he loves him. Mm-hmm. Yeah, it's funny because I, I, I didn't give it a thought, but the way I put it and you immediately agreed. Yeah, I thought like, okay, Nabokov and then, well, maybe Sorokin, yeah. especially with what's happening now. Maybe that's that's how well, it's going to be. Yeah. It's like, hoop, jump 50 years yeah. <laughs> or something, 40 years, and then and then there's that. Well, the funny yeah. thing is like, speaking of what the lecture I was at with a, some Russian literature professor was like, and then in that miraculous year, one of the best years of literary production ever, when... When a school for fools, when Moskva Petushki, when Moscow to the end of the line, and when Pragulki Spushkinum, Strolls with Pushkin came out. 
that year was unparalleled in Russian literature. And you just go like, it's okay, but come on. I mean, like even yeah. Mamlev or Limonov, they're interesting but localized phenomena. Like, um, yeah, I really do. It doesn't age well. Limonov doesn't age well. I like his early stuff, as you said, because it's so. It sort of gives you a window into that world. I think Etia Edichka could age well. I don't know. It just hasn't been translated since huh. the seventies. Or no, sorry, it hasn't been translated since the eighties when it came out. It was translated pretty hmm. stiffly. I think that's a book people could still be interested in, but I don't think it's like eternal literature. I think it's more like if you know the history it's more like on the level of um, a petty demon or like a, Huh. Yeah. You know, I have to say, I, I reread fairly recently, maybe a few years ago. It's me, Eddie. I mean, in Russian. Yeah, yeah. And I thought, oof, I thought it didn't age well really? at all. And especially, especially in comparison to, I discovered, you know, Medvedeva's books, mm. uh, his, uh, Limonov's, I don't know, ex-wife yeah, or yeah. once wife. And the, the book she wrote about uh, immigration experience, which is, I mean, thematically you can sort of compare it to to it's me eddie it's called hotel california hotel california yeah. never been translated into english uh, age is so much better and really? so much better overall which i was surprised i was i was very kind of prejudiced because like the way i had the physical book it looks like trash was like released by some uh fairly <laughs> with trashy cover and just, it looks like a, some trashy book some like middle-aged woman would read <laughs> on a subway in rush i don't know it's just you know you know what i'm saying yeah. aesthetically but turned out no it is amazing and no one gives it any credit to be fair i haven't read limonov since i was like a senior in college and i was just so excited to see all of the the mott so <laughs> uh, it could be i right. should reread but um no i mean i don't think he's that good in any case i think he's more like on the level of mamdev who's like it's worth reading hmm. mamdev and limonov here's the hierarchy i would erect it's not it's okay. not even worth reading Believen. it's worth reading uh like ilizarov or limonov or mamdev for a sort of historical understanding and maybe to like sniff the dirty air <laughs> of of russia but then i think sarokin then going back nabokov then um that's that's the good stuff i just i gotta like your hierarchy here i'm just curious like what are you, what's the point of reading for you if you have like this if you have this really specific you know very um good rigid kind of hierarchy of what makes sense to read what makes doesn't sense to read like what is the what what do you think people should get through books it sounds like you're talking about something religious almost here like what are what are people supposed to get it's through books? It's about hard, yeah, hard drugs. drugs. I was just yeah. going to say, exactly. Come on. <laughs> ha, ha, have you done heroin? No. <laughs> uh, okay, well, I mean, so I don't know. Yeah, it's it's funny. It's funny. I mean, it's interesting to, to hear you talk about books that way just because, I mean, they're like almost like which engineered like religious experience are you going to like take off the shelf basically? For me, well, yeah, for me, I mean, it is like that. No, yeah, I get it. No, I, I, I understand it. And I totally, I totally understand it. And I, I, under, I understand. Yeah, it's interesting. Basically, what's a good hit? Yeah, yeah. yeah, what's a good hit? Like, give me, give it to me, man. Yeah. yeah. Well, also for me, it's my, it's my job, like to be. This is how I sort of am engineer, engineering. I shouldn't say engineering my career. That's such a weird way to put it. But like, trying to shape my work is to only work on books that I really consider to be like hard drugs, so that if I'm translating something or if I'm involved with something, you know that it's like a mark of quality, yeah, yeah. a certain kind of experience, and. um it's really worth uh, doing because I just think that the huge issue and this is a bit of a se separate subject, but the big issue in the literary world today is everything's been diluted so much. Like people just read books that are sort of vaguely pleasant and you finish them and it's like, okay, what was that? You know, 
I, I really want people to to help people access these books that are like uh, religious experiences or like uh, taking hard drugs or like, um, you know, intense and immersive and they're taking your medicine. Yeah, yeah, exactly. Yeah. So I think for me, that's, that's the hierarchy. <laughs> of course it's worth reading yeah. everything from a certain perspective. And like, especially if you're learning a foreign language, you kind of, you should read a lot. So if you're, yeah. if you're, if any of your listeners are learning Russian and they're just okay at it, actually Padivin's probably pretty good to read because his Russian is very basic. But, um, but you know, I actually agree with Max. Look, our time is limited here yeah. on Earth and generally, like, um, I don't know, in terms of what you choose to do and how you spend your time. So yeah. don't you want to know what's a good heart, what's a good hit Yeah, no, <laughs> to, true, to yeah. actually spend time, you know, ingesting it? Well, but it? in order to know what a good hit is, you also have to, like, sometimes do the, you know, kind of the... You also kind of have to stand on the corner and fucking buy the drug, you know? You got to slog through the shit. And so, like, you know, and so it's this, you know, this is like the, it's like delivered to you, you know, directly to your brain, you know, by, by wireless. So, I mean, sometimes good literature requires, I mean, it, it does require actually a lot of work, a lot of these things sometimes, you know? Well, with um, literature, you know, they're not necessarily the easiest things to read, yeah. With literature and translation, it's like a lot of times you're slogging through like, bad translations or waiting for stuff to appear. Yes. Like Blue Lard, it's been 25 years almost. That hasn't come out, which is insane considering how amazing and important that book is. So like, I think a lot of huh. the, a lot of the time in English, um, it's not like German's amazing. Part, half of the reason I'm so happy to learn German is because German translators, a book comes out six months later, like clockwork, it's out in German. So all these books that aren't translated into English, I can actually read in German if it's like uh, Norwegian or whatever. Um, Interesting. Yeah. And in English, a lot of the time, the waiting is just knowing about these untranslated blog andre the the whole thing is just knowing about these masterpieces that exist and being like well it's like being in moscow in the 90s i guess the good coke is in new york (laughs) you know like yeah (laughs) or unless you're willing to pay good real you know premium maybe even if you pay premium you won't get yeah exactly yeah Yeah. Yeah. (laughs) wait do you consider cynics a good hit because I do. I like it. No, I like it a lot. I would say it's more like in the um, sort of like Limon of Mamlev, Yudizarov tier, which is, let's say that's the huh. ecstasy tier. <laughs> I don't think it's heroin. <laughs> <laughs> it's not, it's not marijuana. Pelevin isn't even, Pelevin's like spice or something. You know, it's like a synthetic marijuana you buy at a gas <laughs> That's station. funny. It's like a bath salts. Yeah, yeah. Yeah. Wait, but then in Dune, if spice in Dune is pretty strong. No, but, it's, yeah. but you talk about like the real spice. Oh, yeah, yeah, like not, synthetic marijuana. Not, yeah. <laughs> the shit that they sold in New York for a while. Yeah, yeah, yeah. 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 <laughs> <laughs> okay, last, last question and we'll part. Do you think like, so you're doing all this, it's hard for me to believe all this translation from different languages all into English. Yeah. Does it help your writing, your original writing? Definitely it does. But I think it's like, I have very separate tracks for it. Um, in the sense that they never really cross pollinate. Uh, I've sort of be- really? because I've been doing yeah because it, the thing that's helped a lot with is technical skill. It was actually very cool doing this final draft of Blue Lard because I first translated it like I had a draft in 2018. So I've been and I started working on 2016. So I've been working on it for like nearly seven years. And I and doing this final draft, I really felt how much uh, stronger I'd gotten and how much like um, more able I was to use complex words or how much stronger my writing had gotten period. So I think the value of being a translator, if you're a writer is um, it's like writing on a treadmill, right? The hard thing about writing original stuff is ontological questions. Uh, Why am I writing this? Is this good? What is this about? What do I want to write? Uh, Should I continue writing this? Do I suck? But if you're translating, 
all the questions are, are, are craft questions, right? How do I make this word more specific? How do I include this phrase? How do I include, um, how do I make this smooth while still also maintaining the specificity of the original? And, and those sorts of craft questions are very helpful with original writing. But of course, the hardest part of original writing is ontological questions, which uh, translation doesn't help with at all. <laughs> so yes and no. Okay. And uh, so, and you have like a novel coming out? Yeah, it's out with agents. I have a novel that's um, out with some agents and uh, it's kind of been accepted in a few places, but I'm also seeing where I can, you know, see if I set it up properly and get a, get a big advance, <laughs> but I don't know. We'll see. And uh, a lot of, yeah, yeah, that's, it's a tough, it's a tough gig, you know, to get published and, you know, it's, it's interesting, I guess, you know, you, you're working with, yeah, uh, it, it's just it's a, I don't know I just I've gone through the I got, I've gone through the ring a little bit once before you know yeah. um, not with fictional stuff but not fiction stuff but it's a it's a it's a pretty bloodthirsty industry man you yeah know? it is well you yeah. have to I yeah. think that's the other good thing about doing translation is probably the best part of it in addition to the craft element is just being able to not take it that seriously being able to just get endless rejections and get punched in the nose and just get back up i really do think having a career in any creative profession is like boxing and you just have to learn how to get knocked out and then just keep going that's, that's good advice. true yeah. it's like constant uh, fight with uh, just i don't know desperation every day yeah, yeah. even i don't even know once you get some recognition like with the translation stuff i would have thought that at this point after all the Sorokin attention and all this it would it would have gotten easier, but it's still this relentless like uh, sending stuff, checking up. You know, constant. You have to be like a a mafia guy collecting money, <laughs> like not not with the money, right. but just yeah. with like pushing your samples, right. getting people to read. Like, yeah, what you say at least like the ego is not as involved, so it's easier to take whatever yes. yeah. comes your way, rejections or whatnot. Exactly. Yeah, it makes sense. But if you learn then to apply that to yourself then you're good. Cause it just, I think consistency is really what matters. And the other funny thing is that if you look at like the history of literature, most writers who actually matter don't have a very easy time in publishing or like with the whole mechanism of the publishing industry. I think of Vladimir mm -hmm. a lot because Vladimir wrote and put it into his desk drawer for about 10 or 12 years before he really got any attention. And in the 90s, he wow. wasn't that famous. He was like, people knew him, but he was a cult writer. It was really only in 1999 with Blue Lard that he became famous and that he'd been writing, or renowned, let's say, and he'd been writing for 20 years at that point. So, you know, you just have to really be able to mm -hmm. put your head down and just do and just write. And I think it should be a goal in and of itself. I agree. Yeah. <laughs> That's, I think, a good, <clears throat> a good, um, <laughs> good attend on, yes. What good now to end on? Yeah, it's an uplifting message. Well, I think it's good. I, if you, and, yeah, if you good. love it, no, I think it's true. Yes, if you yeah. love it, like I mm -hmm. love translating, I love writing. I don't love final drafting. Final drafting sucks. That's what I've been doing for the last three weeks, and I'm going to be doing for another three weeks because it's just, especially with translations here, like looking for mm -hmm. needles in the haystack, and the needles are mistakes. <laughs> um, but with writing and translating especially first and second drafts i just i love it and the work is a reward in and of itself so i think if that's that should be the way you go about it in my opinion yeah it's right. true yeah. yeah and it's fun to inhabit this kind of the world the worlds you're sort of sort of enchanted by in your yeah. case if you love Sorokin so you kind of get to live in his head when you do translation I can see how it can be <laughs> kind of a trip <laughs> yeah yeah um, yeah in its own way yeah, sure. okay um, yeah well 
Thank you for thank you for doing this. Thank you so much. Yeah, for thanks for doing this. Fun. On. Yeah, thank you yeah. so much.